Um, good morning. Today is Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. This is a special meeting of the Building Inspection Commission. I would like to remind everyone to please mute yourself if you're not speaking. And the first item on the agenda is roll call. Um, Interim President Alexander Toot. Here. Commissioner Chavez. Here. Commissioner Newman. Here. Commissioner Shaddix. Here. Commissioner Summer. Here. And Commissioner Williams. Here. We have a quorum, and um, next is our um, land acknowledgement. The Building Inspection Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the un original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, there we go, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushiloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. I um, also just wanted to note that uh, this is a special meeting, a rescheduled regular meeting. This is a regular meeting rescheduled from the canceled December 20th meeting of the B Building Inspection Commission and will be conducted as a regular meeting. Um, and for members of the public that are listening in, the um, public comment call-in number is, uh, where is it, sorry, 415-655-0001. Uh, and the access code is 2661-678-2123. And uh, the WebEx webinar password is 1213. Uh, to raise your hand for public comment on a specific agenda item, press star three when prompted by the meeting moderator. And next we have um, item two, which is President's opening remarks. Good morning and happy holidays to everybody. Um, this is our last meeting of the BIC for 2023. I want to extend my thanks uh, to the staff, to the members of the commission for all of your hard work and dedication. It's truly appreciated. Um, I would characterize this year as a year of resilience and moving forward, coming out of the pandemic after a couple years of really intense uh, ethics uh, issues that have been uncovered in the department and moving forward. Uh, we have both come out as resilient and continuing to do the good work of improving um, our processes for the people of San Francisco. Uh, we continue to implement the recommendations from the controller's report. We continue, continue to identify and address and cooperate with investigations regarding corruption. Um, and we do that while balancing code enforcement with the culture of culture with a with um, cult, with cultural competence and language access, and I think we've done a lot of improvement this year on, on, in that realm. We also continue to improve our delivery systems to move permits to inspections and respond to complaints to protect the rental housing stock, to assist small businesses in opening to assist in economic recovery throughout our city, especially with the pop-ups and, um, and moving the permit process to be more effective and, and quicker. I would say that one of the things I'm most proud of is our continued attitude of 
balancing code compliance with the desire to say yes and to seek things that are possible. We do this while also knowing that there is a lot more work on the table. Uh, and we will be hearing today about continued uh, compliance and ethics and our updated processes from our staff uh, and also on the continued work of moving the permit process. Um, so those are on the agenda today as our continued work um, that we've made lots of improvements from and, and still have ways to go. Um, today's goals we will be hearing from the nomination committee. We'll be discussing four legislative items We'll be hearing the reform updates and the permit processing, and then we will be setting a special meeting for the fee study in January. So thank you, and without further ado, we can move to the agenda. Okay, thank you. Um, is there any public comment on the president's opening remarks? Okay, seeing none, we're on to item three, general public comment. The BIC will take public comment on matters within the commission's jurisdiction that are not part of this agenda. Hi, I put, uh, last time I spoke, I put up on the overhead um, the uh, 3030 California and uh, two Rousseau um, Street, uh, that four-story buildings requiring precedent, or four-story buildings uh, requiring sprinklers on all four stories. Uh, the lack of sprinklers in here now sets a new precedent that four-story buildings do not require sprinklers. Um, and I provided that email that's available on the, the last one. I sent it to uh, Jimmy Guinimi, um, and no action has been taken on that, either of those. Uh, and on 3030 California, you'll look and you'll see uh, Director O'Riordan was the inspector on that. And also to Rousseau, our deputy director, Matt Green, was at and the inspector on that. These should have been caught at uh, the rough framing stage. Uh, and uh, there's uh, an, an agenda, staff meeting agenda, that says uh, you can put down um, rough framing okay pending electrical and plumbing. Um, it shouldn't be pending uh, electrical and plumbing. When they start trying to put a, a six inch pipe in a four inch wall, this uh, obviously compromises the structural integrity. Um, on 2207 25th Street, which I spoke about uh, a year ago, it was an unlawful demolition. Um, Overden, Director Overton did not write up the unlawful demolition. And uh, he wrote the NOV stating only the front facade is there. And then he told me, he told Jerry Cullinan, who's uh, on the lam in Ireland uh, because he's facing charge in the, uh, faces charges in the United States, uh, that there were lots of NOVs on this, and this would be a great investment, uh, uh, over and told uh, Jerry Cullinan. Jerry Cullinan and his uh, brother then uh, bought the property, and uh, it still has not been completed. And uh, as you can see from the, uh, the Google and the uh, permits, there is nothing uh, left of the original building. This is a de facto illegal demolition. And on 3418 26th Street, uh, and uh, 125 Crown Terrace, um, Director O'Riordan wrote the NOVs on these properties, as well as the uh, one on uh, 2207 25th Street. Um, the people involved were uh, two former VIC presidents who are working together, Director O'Riordan and uh, 
and uh, Matt Green was uh, involved going outside his district. All of these, again, were in my district, um, which I was a district inspector. Basically, Director O'Brien was doing the same thing as Bernie Kern was doing uh, the work of a district inspector while being a senior. And uh, Jerry Dradler gave an excellent presentation uh, last time that uh, about how the complaints are handled uh, when they say uh, thank permit you. Thank research. You. Thank you, sir. Can thank you. Your comment? Is there any additional public comment? Okay, um, seeing none, we are on to item number four, nomination subcommittee for a update from the nomination subcommittee and for B, discussion and possible action to appoint a member to the Board of Examiners, term to expire September 15, 2025, and member seeking appointment, Ronnie Thomas, registered fire protection engineer seat. And um, so we'll have a update from our nomination subcommittee. Sure, um, so the nomination subcommittee met on October 24th. Um, it was a quorum, but I think we were missing one of our members, so we, we didn't um, choose a chair at that meeting, but we will perhaps next time. Um, but we did um, discuss the current open positions. Sonia, can you remind me, the, uh, there are two remaining open positions, I believe, on the Board sure. of Examiners, which is a 13-person um, body. Just one moment. Sorry, just bring that on you. I can also move on to the next item. I thought I had listed them on the agenda. I'm not, I'm, I apologize, but yeah, that we, we do have two other. There's two other vacancies. openings. Yep. Yeah. Okay. On the board of examiners uh, that we are still seeking to fill. Um, but item B on this agenda is regarding um, an applicant we have had uh, who has joined us here today, Ronnie Thomas, um, who's applied for the registered fire protection engineer seat uh, on this board, the board of examiners. Um, we spoke with him at that meeting. Um, he, he meets the qualifications, and uh, he has been a fire protection engineer in California for many years um, and has, it sounds like, great experience um, that would be very valuable to that board. Um, so we did want to thank him for his submission, and we did want to present him to this group today for um, approval and appointment to that seat. Okay. Thank, thank you, Commissioner Summer. Um, did you want to add anything, Commissioner Shaddix? Yeah, as soon as I fit. Okay, I am on the right mic. Sorry, we're back and forth here. Um, thank you, to, uh, Ronnie, for your time uh, back in October. I know that was a rough morning with the, the train and all of that, so that demonstrated to me that your commitment and willingness to put in the extra work you know, to be a part of this uh, committee. So it was a pleasure talking to you, and I, I agree um, that you are beyond qualified for this, this position, and we appreciate you willing to uh, volunteer your time for this. So thank you for being here, and I... I definitely give a positive recommendation. Thank you. Um, is is there a motion or any questions or comments from the uh, other commissioners? Move to appoint. Uh, is it appoint or reappoint? Um, appoint. Yes. Um, Ronnie Thomas uh, to the board of examiners. Okay. Is there Thank a second? You for your willingness to serve. <laughs> Thank you. Is there a second for that motion? I will second. Okay, so there is a motion by um, Interim President Alexander Toot and a second by um, Commissioner Summer. Is there any public comment on this motion? Um, seeing none, I will do a roll call vote. 
Okay. Um, Interim President Alexander Toot? Yes. Commissioner Chavez? Yes. Commissioner Newman? Yes. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. And Commissioner Williams? Yes. Thank you. That motion carries unanimously. So congratulations, uh, Mr. Thomas, on your appointment. And would you like to come forward, please, to the uh, microphone? And you can speak into the microphone, and we will uh, administer your oath of office. Thank you. Okay, if you can uh, raise your right hand. Aye. Aye. And state your name. Ronnie Thomas. Do solemnly swear or affirm. Do solemnly swear. Or affirm. Or affirm. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. Against all enemies. Against all enemies. Foreign and domestic. Foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. To the Constitution of the United States. To the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. For a purpose of evasion. For a purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties upon which I'm about to enter. The duties upon which I'm about to enter. And during such time. And during such time. As I hold the office. As I hold the office. Of a member of the Board of Examiners. Of a member of the Board of Examiners. Registered Fire Protection Engineer. Registered Fire Protection Engineer. Seat of the City and County of San Francisco. Seat of the City and County of San Francisco. Okay, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Did you have any comments or you're okay? I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> Just one moment. Congratulations. Uh, Monique, you can get his signature. Okay. He has it. Okay. okay thank you very much. Uh, so uh, next we are on to item five, um, discussion and possible action regarding Board of Supervisors Ordinance, file number 231130, ordinance amending the existing building code to require buildings with 15 or more stories to conduct and submit supplemental inspection reports that will focus on windows and exterior glass surfaces to identify any defective or damaged materials that may cause glass failures in addition to other requirements. Good morning, Commissioners. Carl Nasita, Legislative Affairs Manager. My colleague, Janie Chan, who's manager of DBI Technical Services, will give a brief overview on recent activities with our facade inspection program, and then I'll be back to talk about the proposed legislation before you. Good morning, Commissioners. <clears throat> My name is Janie Chan. I will be uh, reporting on um, the background on why the changes to the facade inspection ordinance is being proposed. Um, as you recall, a couple months ago, uh, we did report on um, the glass study. And uh, just to remind everyone, uh, so broken glass uh, from seven high rises were reported after the March 2023 storms. And an emergency legislation was passed to allow DBI to require buildings with 15 or more stories built after 1998 to perform a facade inspection and submit a report to DBI within six months of our notification to them. Um, we then presented this to the Code Advisory Committee, who then recommended that an investigation be conducted for more targeted actions. 
And so uh, under the mayor's emergency order, uh, we were able to hire West Janet Elsner, uh, WJE, who is uh, well-versed in the subject of glass failures, to investigate the um, what happened and to provide recommendations for potential inclusion in the facade inspection program. Uh, WJE um, in total investigated the seven buildings and in total 31 panes of broken glass. Um, the findings did show that 30 of the 31 breakages were likely caused by issues that could have been identified and mitigated prior to the storms. And so um, some of the key recommendations um, presented by WJE was uh, to, for facade designers and contractors to avoid the use of Spanro glass um, and tempered glass where possible, and to, uh, to avoid the details that um, require insulation to be installed against the glass. As you remember, that is something that could cause uh, thermal stress in the glass and cause breakages. And the spiral glass part is because um, when glass does break, it can go undetected and, and not addressed. Uh, to building owners, um, to reduce the risk to the public um, by having a better uh, method of detection or protocol for um, prompt action when broken glass is discovered. Um, for the city, um, to update the facade inspection and maintenance program to require a supplemental visual inspection of all glazed openings um, more frequently, and that is with at the five-year point between the already required frequency of 10 years. Um, so this would require buildings with 15 or more stories um, to be uh, visually inspected. Um, and those with uh, Spanro glass or history of breakage within the past five years would require this. And um, this would help to detect unrepaired issues, which may result in a falling hazard. So the recently passed ordinance required uh, facade inspections for buildings with 15 or more stories built after 1998. Um, these buildings were given six months to complete the inspections once notified by the department. So the, these reports are due back to us in April. Um, and we're already receiving some of them. Um, the process was detailed in a DBI information sheet um, that required uh, a detailed have, requiring the 100% visual inspection of the exterior glazing. Uh, the proposed ordinance would require all buildings with 15, 15 or more stories to conduct this supplemental inspection in between the already required comprehensive inspections. And um, these supplemental inspections will include a focus on the windows and exterior glass surfaces to identify any defective or damaged materials that may cause glass failure. Um, and I'll pass it on to my colleague Carl here to talk about the uh, amendments. Do we have any questions about that yet? No, no. okay. Thank you, Janie. We're on slide number seven when you get a chance, Monique. Um, that's okay. So, as Janie was saying, the proposed ordinance would require all tall buildings, which are 15 or more stories, to submit these supplemental inspections based on a prescribed schedule within the ordinance. For buildings that are built in or after 1998 that have not yet submitted the 10-year comprehensive facade report, 
supplemental inspections would start again in 2024, as Janie said, the first one's due in April, and then will be required every five years until their compre first comprehensive inspection report is due, and that is 30 years after the building's construction. Then after that, those supplemental inspections, and again, this is for the buildings 15 stories or more built in or after 1998, the supplemental inspections will take place in between the comprehensive inspection reports so that the buildings alternate between submitting comprehensive and supplemental reports every five years. Uh, on slide eight, um, to augment the legislation as written, DBI staff recommends some additional amendments to the proposed ordinance to specifically call out what is necessary for these new supplemental inspection reports by asserting the minimum elements of those reports. Uh, on the slide, there are three specific amendments that we'd like to pursue. First, we'd like to assert within Chapter 5F that comprehensive facade inspections must include both a general inspection and a detailed inspection, and those distinctions would be based on ASTM standards, industry practice. Um, but for supplemental inspections, that detailed inspection would not be necessary. So only a general inspection, which would be 100% visual, would be required unless the qualified professional recommends that the detailed inspection should be required for that supplemental report. Uh, the other amendment that we'd like to recommend is to specify the minimum elements of supplemental inspections. Again, as I just mentioned, that would be 100% visual and focused on the glass and glazing elements of the building. And a third amendment that we'd like to recommend would be to add an exemption to the supplemental inspection report if a qualified professional attests at the time that that report would be due that three things are true. First, that that building has no spandrel glass. Second, that the property owner has maintained a maintenance log with respect to window maintenance and glazing and any replacements that have been necessary. Um, and that maintenance log must be available for review by the qualified professional. And third, that within that five-year period uh, between the, when the reports are due, that the building has not had any history of glass breakage. So there would still be a reporting requirement, um, but they would not be required to do the 100% visual general inspection. One other amendment that we'd like to recommend that's not on this list but was discussed at the Code Advisory Committee would be to add to Chapter 5F a definition of what compliance means. Um, and that would be to include both acceptance of the report by DBI and after our review of the report that the invoice for that review has been paid. Um, this is to support the enforcement process so that if we had to issue an NOV, a notice of violation, because for any reason, um, that NOV could not be lifted until the invoice has been paid. Uh, that we've gained some experience with that from the private school soft story program where some, some invoices hadn't been paid um, and that caused some challenges for us. So we would like to consider that amendment if possible in this ordinance as well. So with all of those, if the building 
Inspection Commission does recommend this ordinance to the Board of Supervisors with staff's proposed amendments. DBI staff will request that Board President Aaron Peskin, who is the sponsor of this ordinance, uh, we'd ask him to incorporate these amendments in the legislation. So as I mentioned, the Code Advisory Committee did meet to consider this ordinance and they made a unanimous recommendation to the VIC to recommend approval of the ordinance to the Board of Supervisors, including all of those amendments that I just mentioned. And today we would request your recommendation to the board, including those amendments. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Is there any remotely? Okay, um, there, with there being no public comment, is there any commissioners questions or comments? Just a fast one, Carl. Just, I promise you it's fast. Do you know, uh, or do we know, does DBI know how many buildings we're talking about and which specific buildings fall under this new, not new, but fall under um, the requirement to be inspected? Like, do you actually have the physical addresses of these buildings? So if it's, is it, I'm assuming this is self-reporting, and if they don't self-report, then there's a follow-up. We do have a database of all buildings, 15 stories or more. I, I know the buildings built in or after 1998 that we just notified, I think there were 72 of them. Uh, and I think, you know, buildings built any year that are 15 stories or more, I think there's 200 and something. I don't know the exact number, but we do have that on, on hand. Um, can I just have some confirmations of my understanding? Is the supplemental inspection only for spendrel glass? Is no, it, is no. That, okay, it's, I, I'm trying to understand the exemptions, and so because that's the first exemption, I'm just try, I'm trying to understand what the exemptions, um, like what what the logic is. So the the supplemental inspections would be for all windows and glazing systems in the building. Um, Spandrel glass is, based on WJE's report, the most common to break. Correct. And so that exemption would be, we recommend that exemption if the building doesn't have spandrel glass and also no history of breakages in the glazing system and windows that they do have. And that they log it. Exactly, right. right. So that's yeah. like those are the three triggers. And is the... Is the third exemption written to capture all of it? So the third exemption says that, uh, but there's, there's, no, there's no history of breakages in the, sorry, I don't have the language in front of me. Would we be able to bring the language up? Yeah, it's um, slide eight. Mindy, could you please bring slide eight up? I just want to make sure I understand the exemptions and how they work together collectively yeah. um, to make sure that anything that is could be in the log that could trigger a concern that it would it's uh, that it, it's outlined in, in exemption number three. But is there do inspect does the there's if something shows up that's in the log that doesn't exactly meet, you know, what's the, the language of exemption number, the trigger number three, does the professional have the ability to recommend the, the inspections anyways, or are they automatically out? So the, all of these requirements would have to be attested to by the qualified professional. Yes. So if they're not willing to attest, 
and they recommend to that building or that property owner that they need to do the inspection, I, I think that's what would what would take place. I see. Okay. So these are I that makes sense to me. Okay, I'm comfortable with that. And um yeah, I'm I'm delighted with the additional um, a, a def definition of the compliance because I think that will be um, necessary moving forward. So thank you. Thank you. I have no further questions, but I see that my other commissioners do. Commissioner Newman, uh, just a quick question: When last you were here and we reviewed the recommendations from um, the consultant. Uh, the findings showed spindle glass, tempered glass, and insulation against glass as all being uh, high risk. Is there a reason that we've only for? Um, is there a reason we're not calling out those as well? Or I, it, I guess it makes sense. Sorry, I, I take that back because you you basically limited the exemption to only be for the one that is the the least. Uh, is visually can be seen exactly right but the, the tempered glass and the insulated glass cannot be be seen exactly right a, yeah good memory so, yeah sorry I was going back I'm trying to like go back through the report and and sort of connect it to the decisions that we made Thank okay you. I think that's it I answered my own question if I was <laughs> giving myself a moment longer um <laughs> thank you commissioner They had a history of breakage in the last three years, and they had or five years. I'm sorry, and they what like what brought us to the number of five years? I don't. I might have to defer to Jamie on that question. Uh, so under this program, there's already a requirement to do inspections every ten years. This supplemental inspection would be placed between the ten-year frequency, so that's five years. Um, so that's one of the reasons for the five years. And then the other is uh, one of the findings uh, from the investigation was that there uh, were, there are buildings out there with tempered glass that have uh, nickel sulfide contamination. And glass that has this contamination can cause uh, spontaneous breakage. And it's you. It usually happens within the last, you know, ten years or so. And so, if it doesn't happen, then it won't. If if it hasn't happened, then it likely is not a risk. Um, so, that's one of the reasons why uh, history of breakage was highlighted here. Yeah. Thank you. Is there any further uh, commissioner comments? Then, um, seeing none, is there a motion on this item? <laughs> um, I'd like to make a motion to um, uh, agree with the amendments, uh, positive recommendation. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Is there a second? I'll second. So there's a motion by uh, Commissioner Shaddix and a second by Commissioner Chavez. And I'll do a roll call vote on the item. Um, Commissioner um, Interim President Alexander Toot? Yes. Commissioner Chavez? Yes. Commissioner Newman? Yes. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. 
And Commissioner Williams. Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously. Thank you. So we're on to the next item, item six, discussion and possible action regarding Board of Supervisors Ordinance, file number 230862-2, amending the building code to temporarily suspend the annual registration requirement and registration fee for vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts through December 31st, 2024, in addition to other requirements. Thank you, Sonia. Hello again, Commissioners Carl Nacita, Legislative Affairs Manager. As I think you know, the San Francisco Building Code sets forth controls for vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts, requiring owners of those vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts to fulfill some obligations, including registering the commercial storefront with DBI within 30 days after it's become vacant or abandoned, to renew that registration annually as long as it's vacant, to pay an annual registration fee, and to submit an annual report to DBI confirming the maintenance of the property yearly. We're on slide two when you get a chance. Um, that was added to the building code in 2019 at a time that the economic conditions in the city were, were very different than they are now. The building code also requires DBI to maintain a registry of all of these vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts. Next slide, please. So the mayor's office has proposed an ordinance to temporarily suspend the registration fee and annual report requirements within the building code for vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts. And that suspension would be for one calendar year from January 1st, 2024 through the end of 2024. Next slide. So that was a very high level overview, but there are some key requirements for vacant commercial storefronts that would not be suspended. So I think it's important to walk through in more detail what would be suspended versus what would not be suspended. And on this slide, you can see the requirements that would be suspended. Again, it's the property owner's obligation to register a vacant or abandoned commercial storefront and to pay the registration fee as well as the annual report required for these property owners uh, confirming that the storefront's been maintained and also DBI's vacant storefront registry would be suspended. That means properties would not be added to the registry during this one year suspension. Also, what would be suspended is DBI's ability to write notices of violation solely because a property owner hasn't registered or paid the registration fee or filed an annual report. Next slide. These are the key requirements though from the building code that would not be suspended with the ordinance, including signposting in a conspicuous location that provides the current name, address, and phone number of the owner of record or an authorized agent. Really importantly, exterior maintenance of the building and the grounds so that they remain in continuing compliance with all applicable codes and regulations and do not contribute to or are not likely to contribute to blight. Interior maintenance would not be suspended and that's to keep the building free from damage by the elements or plumbing leaks, to keep it free from accumulation of trash or debris and from infestation by rodents, insects or pests. Also, really importantly, the building must be secured from unauthorized entry 
and the property owner must maintain fire and liability insurance. Next slide. Also, what would not be suspended is DBI's ability to issue notices of violation and pursue enforcement for public nuisance for failure to comply with all of those requirements that were listed on the previous slide, signposting, interior and exterior maintenance, security, and insurance. Next slide. Just a bit of background information. So this is a substitute ordinance from what was originally proposed by the mayor's office a couple of months ago. In that first ordinance, DBI would have the discretion the discretion to waive the registration fee. After some conversations, we thought it might be more equitable to have a across the board suspension of the registration requirement and fee. So our anticipated fiscal impact, if this legislation passes, would be decreased vacant building registration fees in the amount of up to $300,000. Because this would be over the calendar year, that would be split in the fiscal years. The vacant commercial storefront registry is complaint-based. So when DBI receives a complaint for a vacant commercial storefront, an inspector investigates and determines whether or not it's actually vacant. If it is, the department then adds that property to the registry that we maintain and notifies the property owner of their obligations. Every year thereafter, DBI staff contact the property owner to remind them of their obligations under the program and to verify whether or not the property is still vacant. One challenge with our current data is that it's not longitudinal, and I'm not a data person, so my colleague explained this to me, so hopefully I explain it right to you, but the individual records are not linked between years. We've got individual records, so it's hard to track the outcome in changes, meaning whether or not the, vacant, the building stays vacant or not. So with this one-year suspension, DBI staff would use that time to create a better data capture and reporting system based on the existing list of vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts that we have now. That list would stay intact during this one-year suspension. And lastly, DBI's vacant commercial storefront registry and registration fee is separate from the tax that is now assessed as of last year, I think, or uh, on... Um, vacant commercial storefronts by the treasurer and tax collector. So that tax is still in effect. Next slide. The Code Advisor Committee met on December 6th and they voted unanimously to make a recommendation to the BIC to recommend approval of this ordinance to the Board of Supervisors. The CAC made a couple of additional recommendations including rescinding NOVs issued in prior years for failure to register vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts. And the CAC also wants to refer this matter generally to a subcommittee of the CAC to evaluate the program and make recommendations on changes to it for when it resumes in 2025. With respect to that first recommendation to rescind the NOVs issued for failure to register in prior years, DBI staff respectfully disagrees with that recommendation out of fairness to the property owners who in past years properly registered their vacant or commercial storefronts when the existing obligation was in effect. And that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Sir, any public comment on this item? <clears throat> Remotely? Okay, is there any commissioner comments or questions? Commissioner Shaddix? 
Carl, thank you so much um, for that presentation. And I'm sure you all know my fellow commissioners, I've been working on this for so long. Um, so, um, you know, I agree that, uh, you know, things just aren't where they were five years ago. Um, but what still is confusing, um, and I don't know that it really is DBI's um, purvy, is that tax, you know, what was that Prop M that, you know, two thirds of the voters approved this. Um, and I think at that time, you know, voters were, you know, really targeting bad actors, um, which we don't have that many, but, you know, the ones that we do have, are very impactful to commercial corridors. So um, I guess my question without getting into commentary is if, if we're taking this off of DBI's plate as far as, um, you know, uh, registering as a vacancy. Oh, I'm rapping now. I like it. Oh, yeah. okay. Am I done? <laughs> oh, I was liking that. Um, so, Try, yes. So my, my question really is, uh, how then does the tax collector know this is a vacancy and what data do they have to back up? Um, because the, 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 it's now been a year and so the tax bills, property tax bills are out. Um, people are gonna start getting these notices. Um, I had a chance to kind of review how that process worked and you know, there's gonna be people getting some pretty hot, you know, hefty notices and uh, coming up. So how do they, or what, you know, it's, it's like we have two different city agencies doing the same thing, and neither one of them are talking to each other, and so now we're taking away DBI, which was really the enforcement part of this to verify that is a vacancy, and now, but the tax collector is still live, and that's still, so I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do you, you, you have no mechanism to report a vacancy now, because DBI was really the way to go through the, through the report of vacancy, you know. Um, so the tax collector, I don't know you have that. So I don't know if you can just comment on all, all this. But I do, I, I do agree that it's the time's just, it, we're not caught up yet. So we need to give it a little more time. And I, I do agree that taking that year and having uh, DBI, you know, and I'm happy to help because I've certainly been doing this for a long time, um, make the databases more efficient and easier. Um, so I, I agree with that too. But um, I do, I do agree that we need to pause this for a while, but uh, I would like to know just your thoughts on how this is gonna work with the tax collector vacancy. So my understanding is that the tax collector doesn't rely on DBI's vacant registry now to assess the tax. I think they, they've received our list of vacant storefronts. Like I mentioned though, the data is not reliable because of the challenges and how it was tracked before. Um, so with this one-year pause, I think would be an opportunity to be better partners with the treasurer and tax collector if they need to rely on our registry as we make that registry work better for us and our enforcement as well. Like I said, though, I don't think they rely on our, or they haven't to date relied on our list and that their assessment of the tax on vacant storefronts has been sporadic uh, as they roll out the new tax. 
So I definitely agree that there's room for improvement across the board and that, and that we could work with the tax collector. Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to say I'd like to agree that we should not be suspending previous years. Um, I, I agree with um, what staff has stated. You know, people followed the rules. They did what they were supposed to do. Um, we should be consistent in that, and it should be looking forward. Um, and then I, I have a couple of questions. Um, one, during the year pause, will there be some thought given to or will there be work done to coordinate those efforts with the treasurer's office? Because it, I agree with Commissioner Shattuck that you know we're, we have two different agencies essentially doing the same thing. Um, it seems inefficient, although I know each is coming at it from a different policy standpoint. Um, it just seems like there is um, some opportunity there to create efficiency for both uh, departments. I agree completely, and, and I think it, it's definitely uh, advantageous to share the data that we have between departments now. And then just another question. So, you know, I, I don't take issue with pausing the, the, the fees. I want to understand if pausing the work behind it is because we will not have the revenue to support that work because it really does seem vital to continue to collect that data even if we are taking a pause within the year um, to fix the data systems. I would imagine that there is the possibility to create the linkages you need for the previous years uh, of data collection to, so that you can actually have a longitudinal database. It's just a matter of finding what the appropriate link is for each of those pieces of data, you know, be that block and lot number or whatever is determined with the data. Um, so I, I'm a little concerned about like why we're pausing data collection in the year. So well. we, we've, thank you for the question, Commissioner. We, we have discussed that with our code enforcement staff who administer the program now and We've discussed their ability to, if this legislation passes, to still write NOVs for maintenance issues and that sort of thing. We've discussed with them, within our complaint tracking system, acknowledging that this NOV is being written as a vacant commercial storefront and the reason why, and noting the ordinance so that we can collect that data um, during and after the year-long pause. So we still have, we would have the ability to collect data for vacant commercial storefronts during that one-year pause. But we wouldn't, there's no requirement to register and because there's no enforcement mechanism. Right, right. Okay. Thank you, is there any other questions or comments? Yeah, one more, um, a few more, yep. Um, the registry and the data, is it publicly available? It, it's not publicly, we don't post it, but it, it is public data. As Sunshine requests. Exactly, So yeah. uh, the effect of the, the change would be, when it, it would, that data would not be available any longer. Is that, is that right? We would still have the data on hand, so if someone made a request for it, we would have to. We would have to uh, the property owners wouldn't be registering, so there wouldn't be the data of which property owners are 
owning vacant storefronts. Is that right? Right. We wouldn't have data for 2024. Okay. Right. One being that um, how are we going to tell people next year when it's back on, right? Um, like, how do we then roll this out? Like, taking a pause from this point in time is like, we all understand how that happens. But then how do we get it back online in the right way and then notify everybody, presuming that, you know, commercial corridors change over the next 12 months? So... My concerns are not big enough to hold up this hold up this piece, but I would appreciate this you know this question being posed to the mayor's office as well as within DBI of how are we going to do this um, so that it is more efficient um, coming back. And when we, I'd like to have a report um, at the end of the year where we come back and say this is our plan to get it back online. Um, right, so this is a 12-month pause, so maybe in October or November of next year, um, coming back to the commission with a rollout plan um, from the data perspective and the policy and how we're going to implement this program, how we're going to get everybody um, you know, back, in, back into the system, what are the improvements and things like that. So not from a legislative perspective, although we love seeing you, Carl, <laughs> but I think that about the, you know, kind of the, the re-implementation of this program, what's that rollout and allow for both public and commissioner input into that process um, so that we can, uh, we can ensure that, um, we're, that this is being captured, that the, the cross-department um, you know, collaboration is happening, um, et cetera. And... I finally, I also agree with the staff recommendation to hold the NOVs um, that are. So, um, but I do appreciate CAC for their all their great work and um, their hard work in reviewing this, these items. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments? Same thing. So, just want to echo um, the what my fellow commissioners have said and highlight that I am concerned about rolling this program back out um, once a year is over and so and making sure that people aren't hit with a lot of NOVs because they weren't aware that the program the suspension was ending that they had previously had issues registering and they were not told and advised given technical assistance to come up to code or to register in time and so um, just want a second that it would be great to have some sort of report and a and understand better the plan for rolling this back out so that folks aren't blindsided by it. Certainly, yeah, I, we're happy to come back towards the end of next year with a rollout plan and a report. One thing to note is right now, property owners aren't notified at the same time. If they register in March, their, reg their registration is valid for 12 months. So with this pause, we do have the opportunity at the end of next year to notify everyone at the same time, which hopefully does make our process more efficient. Thank you. Um, if there aren't any other comments, is there a motion um, on this item? Um, oh, 
Oh, I'll make a motion to recommend um, including the staff's recommendation to, uh, to uh, not suspend previous year NOVs. May I also add that this, the Code Advisory Committee's recommendation that it come back to their subcommittee also before it gets reenacted seems like a good idea? Agreed. So, two recommendations. <laughs> okay, so. Well, um, with this motion, would it be possible to break this out? In, because there seem to be different elements here. Yeah. There's the element of generally recommending it, and then there's the DBI recommendations or the uh, Code Enforcement Committee recommendations. So perhaps we can modify what we're moving uh, so we can break out the votes and uh, be clear what we're voting on. I think it's an ordinance though, right? So you have to address it all in one. I think that the language, we're recommending the language <laughs> of the legislation and then CAC were recommended two separate actions, right? And those were DBI actions. So I think it's, I think it would be proper to move the legislation, recommend the legislation, because that's just <laughs> like, are we, the, the policy document. Rob? And then, Rob? Can you help us out here? The CAC recommendations are DBI kind of internal recommendations that don't, uh, that don't affect the legislation, correct? Uh, yeah. I think that's it. And so Deputy, can, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, the, the CAC is making recommendations that would not actually amend the language of the ordinance. So you can um, you can embrace those policy changes as as, uh, as interim president Alexander Toot said, or you can say you don't like those, but you don't need to actually weigh in on them at this time. The most important thing is the language of the ordinance itself, whether you recommend moving that forward. Would it be okay with the maker of the motion if we separated the two items? Sure, or you, why don't we make, you can make a new motion. Why don't we make <laughs> you, you, I think, you, can you rescind your motion first? <laughs> it would be all really proper about I it. I rescind my motion. <laughs> I'd like to make a motion to recommend the ordinance uh, file number 230862-2 uh, to the Board of Supervisors. There's a motion. Is there a second? I'll second. Okay. There, motion and a second uh, was motion by interim president Alexander to second by commissioner Shaddix. And the, up to a roll call vote. Interim president Alexander Tooth. Yes. Commissioner Chavez. Yes. Commissioner Newman. Yes. Commissioner Shaddix. Yes. Commissioner Summer. Yes. And commissioner Williams. No. Okay, then the motion carries um, five to one. Okay, is there anything else with this item or we're, we're done? Is there anyone who has to make a motion regarding the CAC recommendations? I think, uh, if I understand Rob correctly, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I believe that it, you guys can consider it, but he, I think he said he don't, you don't have to have a motion. I, there might be a desire to have one, which is what I'm asking. Okay. Oh, I, that's up to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's not mandatory, just a question. Okay, seeing none, I think we can move to the next item. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're on to item number seven, um, discussion and possible action regarding amendments to Administrative Bulletin 093, 
um, implementation of green building standards, AB 93, which provides standards and procedures for the implementation of the green building requirements of the San Francisco Green Building Code, effective January 1st, 2023. Uh, good morning, uh, <coughs> President Alexander Titt and members of the commission. My name is Barry Hooper. I'm a senior green building coordinator with the Department of the Environment Department. I have a couple slides. Could we bring this up on screen, Sonia? Yes, just, just one moment. So today's item focuses on just streamlining the approvals relating to accessory dwelling units uh, with regard to green building requirements here in San Francisco. We have made a, uh, observed that there's a differential treatment currently uh, of freestanding ADUs versus ADUs that are built within the building envelope. And we'll just have a bit of context for that once the slides are working. Can we get assistance as a GovTV? We see it. We see the slides on WebEx, but they're not showing in the room. You also have them in your packet, so I could just okay. uh, go you through You can go ahead and go, and go forward. Fine. Okay, there we go. Okay. okay, great. If we could move to the next slide. So just a quick bit of context. Next slide. Um, San Francisco legalized ADUs back in 2014. Initially, they were exclusively allowed within uh, underutilized spaces within the uh, existing building envelope, and that remains by far the most common way that they're constructed. Uh, but there are, and those are always treated as an alteration to an existing building. There are, however, now allowed uh, in San Francisco circumstances when you can't, the planning code would allow you to uh, build a freestanding ADU and so those have been treated to date as new construction under the green building standards, and that's triggered some uh, additional review and requirements. We go to the next slide. Um, these, however, if you're building a freestanding ADU, they have to be small. They're limited to uh, generally 800 square feet or at most 1,000 square feet. Construction of a small unit on an existing lot, accessory to an existing building, has an environmental benefit unto itself in terms of transit, uh, in terms of limited use of materials, in terms of being efficient for the um, amount of energy needed to for the comfort of the occupants. And so the proposal before you is to treat them really in the same way under the regulation as a ADU that is of, you know, could be of similar size, but is built within the existing building envelope. Next slide. And so the detail of that is in Administrative Bulletin 93. Next slide. But the, um, it really boils down to these two tables that we've been uh, requiring uh, only Cal Green measures for an ADU built within the existing envelope. So it's the statewide green building code. And we've required those and also local requirements the, that the building be built to the Greenpoint rated standard if it's a freestanding ADU. Uh, the determination is that that's really not necessary. Uh, due to the size of the units and their inherent benefit uh, from stemming from their size. And so the proposal is just to treat a freestanding ADU accessory to an existing building as a uh, alteration to the existing building. And then there's also a proposal to add some clarifying language uh, within the bulletin explaining that the, explain the specific use of attachment E, which is um, collected for demonstration that the green building requirements have been met Attachment E was designed for new construction and major renovations and has been utilized for that purpose 
And so the change in language is just to really uh, align the language in the bulletin with DBI's process as it is currently implemented. So it would not be a change uh, on the ground. I'd be happy to answer questions. Thank you. Um, is there any public comment on this item? Any remotely? Okay, there are any commissioner questions or comments? I had a, I had a question, it, um, and I think this all makes sense. We're, we're streamlining it so we treat all the ADUs the same. Um, as a person who lives in a single-family home that is apparently the size of an ADU, um, <laughs> I was curious: is there a differentiation between? Not that we build a lot of new single-family homes here, but is there a differentiation between that and what you call an ADU? Does it have to be? It has to be just like on a property of adjacent to another structure? Right, so there's an existing, yeah. some sort of structure on the existing property. Usually it's single family, it could be multifamily though. And uh, you're building an additional unit on that same property. And again, most commonly that's occupying the existing garage or storage space uh, that's commonly you know, not finished space, at least at original construction for most uh, San Francisco single family, multifamily. So there, in your, in your knowledge, there hasn't been for example, cases of people trying to build just new structures, but somehow calling them ADUs? That would not fit yeah. the, the definition of the bulletin, yeah. no. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. I just want to understand, like, what are the major differences between these two green code, like, codes? And sure. So. CalGreen is a, just an informal term for the California Green Building Standards Code. That's Cal, uh, <clears throat> Title 24, Part 11. It was uh, first adopted in 2010, and it is a um, set of green building requirements that apply statewide to set minimum sustainability standards for California. Uh, it has been amended, you know, like other codes over that period, to and in some cases become a bit stricter. It does address uh, water efficiency, waste efficiency. Energy is separately regulated in the energy code. Um, so it is a minimum baseline standard representing statewide consensus. In 2008, San Francisco uh, adopted its first green building ordinance applying to private sector buildings that had, since then uh, has utilized uh, green building rating systems as a tool to set the bar higher uh, to ask for a greater sustainability effort and outcomes than the minimum required by the state. The main features of what we're talking about here is if you're building a um, single family home, whether it was treated as a single family home as an ADU or it's the first home building on the lot, um, Greenpoint rated uh, would require a special inspection, so a specialist specifically trained in reviewing the green building measures. We're going to look at that more closely. And then for each of those major areas of impact of the building, um, there is both a minimum standards that are a little bit stricter than uh, CalGreen, and then there's a broad menu of a la carte measures that are selected by the design professional and the builder appropriate to that site. And so it varies a bit, but it's, it really boils down to asking more uh, in terms of reducing the impacts of the construction or the efficiency and operation of the building. So the goal here is really um, twofold. It's cost 
uh, or it's uh, streamlining in our process so that we have a consistent code, but it's also a cost-saving measure for the end user to encourage more ADUs to be built within San Francisco. Yes. Okay. I have not so much a question, but a comment. Um, when I actually used to work in the legislature and the first thing I worked on was SB 1069, which was um, accessory dwelling unit legislation. Um, and one of the biggest challenges that we had in incentivizing people to build ADUs was actually compliance with green codes in a lot of ways because of the size of ADUs, being unable to have like the number of windows, the types of painting, all the things that were required. So it's exciting to see that there is in, um, there's energy and there's appetite to like to address those challenges. Um, I guess the one question I do have is um, because these are standalone ADUs and so they are separate from like building in something in a building that I assume has already held those different structures. Like, what are we to kind of piggyback off of Commissioner Newman's question? What exactly are we losing by reducing the green efficiency standards? Um. In this case, that appears to be pretty limited, and it's for the reasons you laid out. So when you're building an ADU, uh, you have limited control over the site. I mean, you're used, occupying a portion of the site if it's freestanding uh, that would not otherwise have been occupied, but you may, particularly in a small lot in San Francisco, you may have limited uh, remaining area of the lot that's not occupied by the building, and so the um, opportunities for uh, you know, innovative stormwater management to utilize uh, uh, gray water to you know a lot of things that might be of interest commonly in a single-family new construction custom home here may not be practical choices so it's, it's essentially like you're observing that just getting to the, meet the green building green point rated standard is more challenging in a smaller building where you are uh, have limitations to the existing structure. Um, I don't have a quantitative estimate for you because you know the fundament. The state has made, moved, moved a long ways, and so the uh, low VOC paint, uh, you know, fundamental measures like th that are appropriate to ensure a uh, good likelihood of good indoor air quality, of relative efficiency of the building, um, of waste management in operation, like those are those are, are all addressed both by state and local codes. So it's really those a la carte measures, like what flexibility, and it's the, the city wouldn't be imposing a requirement. You have to do those a la carte measures. You still could do them and add them as features to, if you enjoyed them in your ADU. Um, great, and one additional question. So I know that we've had other measures passed by the state for like lot splits and to allow folks to purchase the ADU off the single family home. Do you see any sort of like challenge emerging if folks were to decide to do that with an ADU on their lot? Because it is, in some cases, the size of another single-family home. Or do you think just the merit of it being on the same lot as a primary home? I'd have to refer that question really to the Planning Commission. It's really a, a zoning uh, okay. question. Good, good morning. Neville Pereira, Deputy Director um, of Permit Services. Uh, firstly, regarding that initial question to... Um, uh, to us here, uh, in my experience, uh, 
whenever we uh, make our regulations more uh, more usable to the community, as the, the Cal Green uh, the, uh, the Green Building Standards Code does, it just uh, it just allows the uh, community better and, and and more holistically respond to those that legislation. Every time we we create higher standards like the Greenpoint rated system or the LEED, LEED program does. It's, it, it becomes more exclusive and, and uh, you know, as the general drive is to create more housing here, this will d definitely encourage that. Um, regarding the, uh, lot the lot split, yeah. Um, the, there is a propensity to use this, uh, there's a, there's a uh, ability for somebody to, to abuse this uh, this regulation because knowing that there's legislation on the books and, and already is there to be able to purchase uh, and, and subdivide that, that property. ADUs typically use the existing utilities off the main building, so they don't separate those. Uh, you, you, you string, uh, you know, becomes a sub-panel essentially off of the, the main building and uh, water and, and, and so on and so forth are, are taken off the main building. It doesn't prohibit an ADU or a contractor creating new utilities, a new electrical service panel, and so on and so forth, kind of in preparation of that subdivision rec uh, rule. Um, so to answer your, qu your question more directly, um, whatever is being proposed here will not get in the way of that um, and will not really lessen the effects of uh, you know, the, the, the green building standards for that ADU. Thank you. Thank you. And it's great to see that we're making strides on this. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> uh, Commissioner Toot, Alexander Toot. I'm curious, it sounds like the intention in some ways, is, well, is to, to streamline, but also to encourage the construction of ADUs. My question is, it seems logical that if a, the existing buildings, right? Um, most of the existing buildings, I'm imagining, either were, were constructed before any of these green standards were input. Were were input. But if some, if a, a building is constructed using the green points standard, and then you know immediately afterwards they would apply for an ADU for you know under the Cal Green standard, would that? be different, would they be allowed to meet two different standards versus if they, if it's theoretical empty lot, um, they apply for the two buildings at the same time? So just to confirm, I heard the question, if you constructed a new building and then immediately after you pulled a separate permit to construct the ADU, could you do that? And yes, you could build to a lower green building standard, the permitting fees for all of the relevant agencies would more than offset the savings from the, the green building uh, requirements, but um, it doesn't, it wouldn't affect that type of sequence of events, no. I'm just, I'm just my, my curiosity is if building number one has to meet the green point standard, why wouldn't building number two as an ADU meet that same, meet that same standard? It would be a good idea, but un under this proposal, it would not be required. Not be required, I see. I have no further questions. Anyone else? Thank you. No, no further questions. Then is there a motion on this item? Anyone? Motion, motion support. 
I'm sorry. Uh, I'll make a motion to recommend this to the board. Uh, it, it's not a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors. It's supporting the change in the administrative bulletin. What is the action? Can somebody um, confirm the action that we're doing? <laughs> is it? Uh, it? This is just a request of this commission to approve it because you're the, the body oversees. A, it's a regulation, and you actually have authority. And we have authority over the re and, but it affects more than just the building inspection department, or it's no. just the okay. So you're coming to us as an expert in kind of a, a technical uh, expert in the environmental code? Sure, yes, I've been uh, effectively I'm a consultant to the building department. Fantastic. We work closely on these, these issues over a long period of time. Well, thank you very much for um, your coming before us and um, for advising the, 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 uh, the building inspection, code, uh, inspection department on this. So um, for clarifying the action. So this will just be a motion to, um, to support administrative bulletin uh, Zero, zero, nine, three. Motion to support uh, the amendment to Administrative Bulletin 093. And is there a second? Okay, I uh, got it from uh, Commissioner Chavez first. Thank you. Uh, so motion by Interim President Alexander Tooth, second by Commissioner Chavez. We'll do a roll call vote. Um, interim President Alexander Toot? Yes. Um, Commissioner Chavez? Commissioner Newman? Yes. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. And Commissioner Williams? Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously. And the next item is item eight, update regarding Assembly Bill AB1114. Logan, Commissioners Carl Nacido, Legislative Affairs Manager for DBI. As you know, AB 1114, which was sponsored by San Francisco's Assembly Member Matt Haney, was passed by the state legislature and signed by Governor Newsom in October. The law goes into effect on January 1st, 2024, and it sets forth a number of requirements for post-entitlement permits for housing development. Building permits are post-entitlement permits under the law. So this new state law will have major implications for DBI and the other permit review agencies, including the planning department, public works, public utilities, and public health. In a nutshell, the law prescribes certain website resources that must be available to applicants, time limits for permit application completeness determinations, and to review projects for code compliance. There are some exceptions to those time limits and also limits to appeals. The city must be in compliance with the various requirements of the law on January 1st, and I will cover each of the topics in the following slides. Next slide. So first, with respect to website resources, the city must provide clear and complete guidance to applicants before they submit a permit application. One key piece of satisfying this requirement is to publish application submittal guidelines, including lists specifying detailed information about what will be required of any applicant for a post-entitlement building permit. The city must also provide an online application. So as a status update, since this is a citywide effort among the various departments who 
do plan review, including DBI. The Permit Center is managing the development of solutions for many of these requirements. To date, the department's post-entitlement phase permit and uh, information has been finalized for these website postings. Application submittal guidelines, including a comprehensive list of submittal requirements, as well as an acknowledgement by the applicant that they meet those requirements. Uh, those requirements have been drafted for the January 1st launch. And also specifications for a digital form for application submission has been completed, and that's being built by the city's digital service department. The digital form will replace emails to DBI for in-house projects, so an improvement there. And this will also support DBI's 100% EPR, electronic plan review goal for in-house projects, which also launches on January 1st. Next slide. So moving to the application completeness determination phase, city staff will have 15 business days from receipt and acceptance of an application to determine whether that building permit application is complete. That completeness determination is limited to the items in the initial list of application requirements that will be posted on our website. And after review of the application for completeness, a notice of determination will be sent to the applicant. If the application is incomplete, the applicant will be given detailed information about what is missing and how to cure it. And then if the applicant resubmits an application, that 15-day business, 15 business day review restarts. Failure to respond within 15 business days by the city results in the application being deemed complete. As a status update for you on these solutions, preliminary staff workflow specifications have been developed for the various departments for the January 1st launch. Once an application has been submitted in the digital form that I just spoke about, DBI's Central Permit Bureau staff will do a review of that submission to determine if all the materials necessary are there. This is not the comprehensive application completeness determination. It's more of a cursory check to make sure that the plan reviewers doing that completeness determination will have the information they need. If they do, CPB staff, Central Permit Bureau staff, will manually create a building permit application in our permit tracking system. But if the necessary materials haven't been submitted, we can reject that application. But if the application has been accepted, at that time, planning department staff will verify entitlement status, since these are post-entitlement building permits, and DBI planning, public works, fire, and public health staff will concurrently review the application in a new solution called OnBase, which the city's just adopted, uh, which will be utilized to include timers, reports, and reminders for staff that the 15 business day deadline is approaching. Once the concurrent review for application completeness is complete, OnBase will then automatically generate the notice that is required to applicants. It will email that completeness letter to the applicant, verifying whether the application is complete or listing department by department what is necessary to complete the application. Next slide. 
So moving to the code compliance review phase, for projects with 25 units or fewer, the city must complete review within 30 business days. If the complete application is not deemed code compliant after that review, the city must return in writing a full set of comments and request for comprehensive revisions at that time. The applicant can then resubmit their plans and any resubmittals are also subject to the 30 business day review time. But if the project is code compliant, DBI will issue the building permit. Then for projects with 26 or more units, the city must complete review within 60 business days. Again, if the application is not deemed code compliant, we must return a full set of comments, request for revisions, the applicant can resubmit their plans and would be subject to those 60 business day review timelines. The city's not limited on the amount of feedback it provides or the number of revisions that it requests for code compliance. And as a status update here, reporting requirements to track these time limits are under development now and department SWAT, meeting, SWAT team meetings with the various permit review departments are in place now to align prioritization of work to make sure that we're able to meet these review timelines. Broadly speaking though, department plan checkers will concurrently review plans for compliance in our existing Bluebeam plan review system and then manually update dates of review in our permit tracking system. Uh, to note though, the city is currently in the process of procuring new electronic plan review, a new electronic plan review platform to replace Bluebeam. That will take some time, um, probably won't be in place before the, the end of 2024. Next slide. So there are some limited exceptions to the project review time limits that I just covered. Time limits may not apply if the project has a specific adverse impact on public health or safety and additional time is necessary to review that application. The criteria for what is considered a specific adverse impact must be objective written standards of policies or conditions as they existed at the time of the permit application. So for example, that would need to be in an administrative bulletin or by ordinance. This exception then would be determined on the substantial evidence of each permit application on a case-by-case -case basis based on that objective criteria that would be published. And then the other exception to the project review time limit is if the permit review requires uh, an outside governmental entity, those time limits are told for the amount of time that the permit application is with the outside entity. Next slide. Finally, on appeals, this is an important topic, especially because of a new role for the Building Inspection, Inspection Commission. The city must provide to the applicant two opportunities for appeal for an AB 1114 project. First, an applicant may appeal the city's application completeness determination, meaning if the city determines that the application is incomplete, the applicant can then appeal that determination to the Building Inspection Commission. And then during plan review phase, if the city determines that plans do not comply, comply with code requirements, the applicant can appeal that determination to the BIC. Of course, in both of these situations, the city will provide either a list of detailed information on how to cure an incomplete application or during the permit review phase, 
a comprehensive request for revisions, but at the applicant's option, they could appeal during either of those phases. If the applicant does choose to appeal to the Building Inspection Commission, a final determination on those appeals must be issued within 60 business days for projects with 25 units or fewer, or 90 business days for projects with 26 or more units. So that covers the applicant's right to appeal. Another big change is once a project is determined to be code compliant, the city must not hold any appeals or additional hearings. And that means that any issued building permit for an AB 11 project, so a project that results in net units of housing, can no longer be appealed to the city's Board of Appeals. So that was a lot of information, uh, but that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions, and we've got Neville here to help. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Any remotely? Seeing, seeing no public comment, any commissioners' questions or comments? Hello, thank you so much. That's really helpful. Um, why are we replacing Bluebeam? <laughs> may, may I ask, if you don't, if this is not the time, we don't need to talk about it. I was just. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner Summer, for that. Uh, Neville Pereira, uh, Deputy Director. Uh, we are not replacing Bluebeam uh, right off the bat. It is the best of breed out there, uh, software for markup. Um, what Bluebeam lacks is a workflow engine on it. It was never intended for that. It was just a, a, the wrong implementation of the software at the time of need during the pandemic. They needed something, they put it in. It was implemented uh, wrongly. They're looking to uh, rectify that by putting a, a workflow engine in front of it. Mm. The markup tool may still be Bluebeam. Oh, okay. But the, the company that has proposed and has won the, the request for proposal has its own solution as well. So, interesting. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, thanks. I had two other questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> the application completeness appeals comes to us. Um, how does that work? So Are that we, is a provision of AB 1114. Yeah. The law says that it will go, those appeals will go to the governing body of the permit issuing agency. Yeah. So that is the big, or by the city's option through an ordinance to the planning commission or both the BIC and the planning commission. Um, Does that mean it's like agenda, like we talk about these at our meeting? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. So we'll work with the commission secretary and our city attorney's office to figure out exactly the mechanics of yeah. what those appeals would look like. But I do think rather than having a subcommittee or a separate body, it would be an agenda item. But I don't know if Rob, you had At it as like, a, like from a developer standpoint, like it doesn't seem worth it to appeal like for incompleteness. You're better off just restarting your 15 days and giving them the additional materials that has to be pretty, it would have to be pretty egregious, I think, for someone to want to go down that path like people it have would, extra know. time though I just, I <laughs> maybe but i was just i'm yeah. just i'm just sort of i'm 
Like I would rather start the 15 days and give no, them the I, additional documentation. I agree that yeah. almost everyone will do that. I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, it's a large volume of permits, so even a small percentage. <laughs> we have short meetings. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. We'll if, see, see how this plays if out. If I may add to that also, Commissioner Newman is exactly, exactly right. Um, the building code has its own appeal mechanism in it. Um, today you uh, ordained or uh, introduced somebody that into the um, Board of Examiners. That is the group that usually uh, hears appeals for building code issues. And that's where we would expect uh, appeals to go. They typically don't meet because building code is, you know, it's pretty hard to appeal, but it, it is possible. But for those, those nebulous or, you know, those um, touchy-feely type appeals, Yes, um, uh, this, you would be that body. Okay. And, oh, maybe that was. Oh, uh, third question, final question. Um, exceptions to projects, project review time limits. And sorry if this is you again, Neville. Um, the second exception was time limits are told if the permit requires review by an outside government entity. Is that peer review? Is that what we're talking about? Oh, so what about peer reviews? That was my question. Yeah, um, no, Deputy Director Neville Pereira. No, that, that wouldn't be peer reviewed. That would, uh, because the peer reviewers represent the city personnel. Oh, okay. So that has to fit yeah. within the... If it was an outside agency, um, some sort of state agency, um, Coastal Com Commission, or not, um, yeah, something outside of the city and county jurisdiction, yeah. Okay, so if it's a project that requires a peer review, it's still within the... It's still within that time. Uh, we, because of the, um, this, you know, the, the heightened review sometimes that goes for those types of projects. Uh, just for the rest of the commission, uh, peer review is um, selected if there's a degree of uh, complexity to the project um, that DBI feels that it needs an outside specialist in geotechnical or uh, structural engineering that we don't have internally. If we, un we, if we feel that we're unqualified for that material or, or uh, structural component, then we will send it out for peer review. Um, so it, it's very rare, but uh, it's usually a complex project. And because of the complexity of those, they, they do take more time and may go beyond the, thresh the time thresholds of 11 AB 1114. So at that time, we would ask for uh, time to be told uh, from the applicant. I would just like to say that I'm happy to see this moving forward, and I think this accountability is great for uh, the industry as a whole. Um, I did have some questions. There's a lot of things that are that say draft, uh, and I know that we have a January 1st rollout. It would be, I think it would be really great if um, you could come back in January and give uh, a report of how the, the rollout of the additional materials has gone. Absolutely. and how we are. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, oh, the city departments are all working together to meet this um, aggressive but uh, t timeline, but I think it's exciting. 
the only request I would make is that before, if and if and when we do meet for this, that there be some written manual for the commission, some something similar to the AAB, um, and maybe that's something we work with with the city attorney's office just to um, help us understand our this new role we have and some of the parameters around it. So, thank you. Uh, program also comes to the BIC um, for appeals of that, and we haven't seen. So. Um, thank you very much thank you. for all of your presentations today. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Okay, uh, next, we're on to item nine update on DBI's reform initiative. Good morning, uh, Interim President Toot, Commissioners. My name is Chris Vergara. I'm the Compliance Manager for DBI, and I'm going to go over a compliance update on our ongoing reform initiatives. Um, I'm going to really focus on three items, the first being our update on the inspection trackers, the thing I mentioned the last time I presented, as well as checks and controls on unauthorized expedited permit plan uh, reviews and approvals, and lastly, uh, conflicts of interest. Uh, okay, so we have the slides up. Uh, so the first part I want to discuss is inspection tractors. So this is one of the controller's uh, recommendations from the public integrity report. They stated they wanted us to perform monthly reviews of same-day inspection schedules, out-of-district inspections, urgency of these inspections, and validity of these inspection approvals. So as part of our ongoing reform initiatives, we wanted to develop a system tracker to monitor these same-day inspections and out-of-district inspections. And just to give an update on it, we do have a skeletal framework in place. It's in the beta testing phase of development, and I'll give you an example of what it's going to look like in the next slides. Uh, we do expect it to be complete, completed and rolled out within the first quarter of 2024. Uh, the next steps being uh, scheduling meeting and soliciting feedback from the impacted divisions. Right now, it's going to be rolled out to uh, our, the building inspection division, electrical and plumbing. I don't believe it's going to be rolled out to housing or code enforcement because they're more complaint-based. Uh, Matt could uh, explain that a little better than I can, but I do know it's going to be rolled out to BID, EID, and PID. Uh, once we get their feedback regarding uh, the, the tracker, uh, we're going to refine the trackers based on their feedback, and then I'm going to develop some compliance pro protocol for monthly reviews of the tracking data and the relevant division leads uh, to clear uh, inspections that have been flagged as unapproved. Uh, I just wanted to thank uh, our da data analyst, Megan Walshui, in the development of this tracker. This is a huge step for the compliance program. It gives, it, uh, gives me the compliance tools I need to monitor and track the operations for at-risk activities. So it, thank you, Megan. Thank you the, to the staff at MIS to help develop this tracker. 
Next slide. So quick disclaimer with these trackers, uh, it's still in development, it's still in beta testing, so don't, don't take the data shown here as accurate because it is subject to change as we refine and add more codes and uh, parameters within it. But I just wanted to explain how it works. So this is an example of the BID inspection tracker. The first table you see above, I know it's small. Uh, this is basically taken from, the data is taken from the inspection scheduling system, or ISS, and it tracks a number of things. So if you see the first few columns, we could see uh, the permit number, the block, uh, the address, and this is how it essentially works. So it takes the, the address and then it identifies the, dis the BID district for that address. So if you see the first redacted portion in black, uh, that, uh, and I redacted because it, it, this may be subject to change. I didn't want to call out anyone that, uh, for unimproved out of district instruction because it's still, still in, uh, in development. So that second column identifies the district in which the inspection took place. The second, the, that fifth column inspection uh, district, inspector district, that is the district of the, the, the inspector in which he is assigned. So if these two differ, because that one is 13 one, that would constitute as uh, out, of out of district inspection. That's why you see in that column out of district, it says yes. So out of district inspections in and of itself doesn't mean it's, uh, it's something that's a violation or it's bad because there, there are reasons for out of district inspections uh, such as inspectors perform out of district inspections because for coverage purposes, say, inspector is sick or uh, someone goes out of vacation and for capacity reasons we need to send someone to this out of district uh, to cover or, or it's based on work ethic work equity or distribution of work so we can't really control the the the, the scheduled inspections maybe there'll be a day when a lot of inspections happen in District 8, and, uh, and then there's none in District 1. So to spread out the work, uh, some inspectors from District 1 will be assigned to District 8 for coverage reasons. So it's about work equ equity and uh, the dist distribution of work. And if uh, inspectors already out of district and assigned, they may be added since they're in the area, and they may be scheduled another inspection uh, while they're out there for efficiency reasons. So there, there's a number of different reasons that out of district inspections take place. But what we wanna do is implement that into the coding of this tracker so it doesn't flag it as a red flag for me to review. So those are part of the feedback I need from the division leads to tell me when is an out of district uh, inspection permissible. So that's what I'm gonna get the feedback from them, integrate into the tracker, and determine whether or not it's approved or unapproved out of district inspection. So you see here that first line, it is out of district inspection, and there is no approved out of district uh, 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 check in the, in the system. So that is, all out of district inspection should be approved by a senior and it should be documented somewhere and it should be documented in the system. So if, if there was approval, we would see, if you see the column changed by or request taken by, if there's a, a name there of a, a senior inspector, then that would typically denote that there was approval for this out of district inspection. Here, I don't see the, the, a name uh, correlated to this out of district inspection, so that's why it's that it's highlighted yes as unapproved out of district inspection. So th th that's essentially how it's gonna work. We're, 
trying to uh, flag all the out-of-district inspections for me to review and monitor on a regular basis. Uh, the, the diagrams and the pie charts in the bottom are just other tools I could use. It gives us a good aggregate data of the volume of out-of-district inspections happening. So that first pie chart in the bottom left, that is the total amount of inspections that happened within the last month. I, put, I set the date parameter for last November. So there was 3,499 uh, BID inspections, including approved out-of-district inspections, but there was 72 unapproved out-of-district inspections. Again, this data is still, I, I just need to disclaim, that, that may be a false positive there. We're just, it's still subject to change. But this gives me an idea of, oh, okay, there were 72 out-of-district inspections that are red flagged on this report that I need to be able to talk to division's leads and seek why these happen. And this is an exceptional tool for me to use because previously we didn't have uh, this to monitor and track these type of inspections, and this is important to track. Uh, the next graphic is a map, and you can't see it, but there's usually dots there that shows where the out of, unimproved out-of-district inspections are happening. And if it's clustered in one particular di district, it may be something for me to look into and investigate and why there are so many unapproved out-of-district inspections in one place. Or, and then there's uh, that second uh, drop-down menus of things are all things that I could use to, uh, uh, to aggregate the data and, uh, or filter the data. So I could filter it by inspector, uh, by senior inspector, by unapproved or changed, and uh, who made the approval. So I could pick an inspector name and see how many out of unapproved out-of-district inspections he made within the last month. And then if, if it's an abnormal amount, and I don't know what that is yet, but I would have a discussion and seek uh, guidance from the division lead to understand uh, why uh, these out-of-district inspections are happening without any documented approvals, because it should be approved and there should be documentation in the system. The last graphic is basically showing the type of inspections that are being uh, 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 being done with these out of districts and the top three, like the dark, the blue would be um, uh, final inspections. The darker blue is uh, uh, site verification and the third largest one is uh, reinforcing steel. And this just gives me an idea of the type of inspections that are being taking place and what, why is there a question I would like to know, why are a large volume of final inspections being done out of district and unapproved? So. Those are all questions I need to learn and understand, but this tool right here gives me a good leg up into understanding our operations, uh, communicating with division leads, and monitoring tracking uh, the, these at-risk activities uh, pursuant to the, um, the controller's request. So that's out of district inspections. Uh, next slide. So this is, a, it's similar to the last slide, but this, this is tracking same day inspections. And it operates similarly. Again, uh, you'll see in the last, uh, the last row uh, where I redacted, there was an unapproved same-day inspection. And the reason we could tell that is if you look at the request taken date, 11-120, or uh, yeah. Yeah, the request taken date is 11-123, and then the appointment date is 11-123. If those dates are, are the same, then it would be a same-day ins inspection. And again, there's, there's definitely uh, a, 
uh, reasons for same-day inspections. It doesn't mean there's something done that was wrong or, uh, or whatnot, but uh, for example, there could be multiple permit applications or revision permits within that property, and the inspector is already out there. So a senior inspector may just add on inspections to the daily schedule of that inspector just because he's out there and it's just for efficiency purposes. So that's how we would track same-day inspections. And again, the important part is, okay, if there was a same-day inspection, was it approved? And then here it says uh, no, because there would be a, a senior name under the change by or the request taken by, and that's why it's denoted as uh, uh, unapproved same-day inspection. So the graphics are the same, works the same. Here we could see the total amount of unapproved same-day inspections, which seems like a, a high amount, but that's subject to change. Once I understand what are approved same-day inspections, it will be added to the code, and we would refine the inspection tractors accordingly. So the next step, basically, I'm going to meet with the division leads. I say, hey, this is the tracker. I'm going to start uh, uh, my oversight over the inspection activity. I need your feedback on uh, whether or not this, this is going to work appropriately. I want you to test it out and let me know whether, what uh, needs to be updated so uh, things aren't red flags when they're not supposed to. And then once we come up with that system and then I could document all the true red flags I would create a approval mechanism to clear those red flags in the system. So I would talk to the division lead, I'd say, hey, this is a, a same-day inspection. I have 10 of them from you from the last month. Give me an uh, explanation why the, uh, these were done without approval. And I would document in the system and clear it if needed be. And if not, then I would investigate further. But essentially, in a nutshell, that's what the inspection trackers are going to look like. Uh, but I'm just happy that we have something in place now. Uh, this is a big step forward for us. Um, next slide. The next thing I want to talk about is the controller's recommendation of identifying any instances of permit application de deviating from established procedures, such as building plan reviews conducted more quickly than expected. So I've had conversation with the controller's office. This is mainly focused on unauthorized ex expedited permit plan reviews and approvals. And I believe, like my understanding in the past, there was a lack of comprehensive process controls or over plan review assignments, which contributed to uh, uh, things deviating from established procedures. There could have been instances where seniors are at tasking staff to, hey, uh, do expedited permit review for this, but there was a lack of documentation in the system or uh, approval of that. Uh, given the, the, the things in place now, I don't think that that is possible based on my conversation with uh, permit services. So just a quick overview of expedited permit plan review is really governed by two things. Uh, first is administrative bulletin number four on primary permit processing guidelines. Basically, that says, subject to reasonable judgment of employees, permit applications shall be logged, separated into various permit types, assigned to staff for review, and reviewed in the order they are received, except for certain designated priority permits. Then the admin bulletin goes on to list a laundry list of things and, and categorize under case A or case B, case A being addresses, uh, initial permit submittals, assignments, reviews, and ish issuance, and they list like emergency work, um, uh, uh, accessible build, uh, building entrance uh, projects, uh, clean energy supply systems, um, affordable housing, uh, housing projects under the home SF, things of that nature. There's a list of things that are 
are exceptions to uh, reviewing permits in the order to received, and they would fall under this category. And for and case B being uh, revision permits or uh, uh, addresses issues related to priority process for permit revisions and other referrals. So there's an application process for this that uh, permit services have to go through, uh, and then there's the the admin bulletin requires documentation, uh, documentation using standardized forms, and it includes written findings and uh, of conformity with the priority types described. So uh, permit services are required to document all the the supporting documentation for approvals under AB4. The next one is premium plan reviews. Basically, it's uh, they pay an extra amount, an additional fee to get an expedited permit review. Uh, and I think it's one, one and a half times the original amount. So part of the AB, uh, going back to that, is quality assurance procedures. Uh, we're supposed to have the assignment of permit applications for priority review and these procedures shall be reviewed by DBI on an annual basis to confirm the intent of this policy. So my intent is to integrate the compliance into that process to make sure we're uh, abiding by the, uh, the guidelines of AB4. Um, next slide. So some of the checks and controls for these plans and reviews. I think the number one defense is uh, regarding project assignments for in-house plan reviews. So basically there's a committee of senior supervisory personnel and they meet on a weekly basis and they discuss uh, all the priorities, the AB4 applications and approvals and then they assign it to staff on a random basis or based on familiarity with the, the type of project. And so basically the project assignments are controlled by this committee and they assign it to different staff. So there's no more of the instances where people are just on the side asked to do a expedited permit review, they have to go through this committee and approved. And uh, uh, we also eliminated the practice of publishing plan check calendars that eliminates the possibility of members of public from sh um, shopping for plan checkers. Similarly with uh, over-the-counter uh, permits, we utilize QList with this a random queue. Uh, so the next step in developing the compliance portion of this is uh, to meet with uh, permit services to see, hopefully the, there's a means to collect data on this. And what we currently have in place uh, is, I, I could utilize an uh, existing report, it's called a backlog report. It'll identify or it'll flag things that are priority or things that fall, fall under AB4. And I could do a random audit on those, uh, of those um, priority projects and then request permit services to provide me the documentation, the application, all the supporting things that uh, you use to approve these priority projects. Uh, I'll, I'll be starting that within the new year, but hopefully I'll have a, a dashboard or something developed for, for compliance purposes where I could track my, my audit, uh, the review of the things, clearing it, I could see the timing of it, and I, I just need to collect data. And it's important because there's another part of the compliance program that I'm responsible for, it's the annual compliance report, and I want to use all this data I'm, uh, I'm compiling to integrate into that annual report. Uh, next slide. <clears throat> Conflicts of interest. So essentially a, a potential or actual conflict of interest exists when commitments 
and or obligations are likely to be compromised or impaired by material interest or relationships that make agency unable to or potentially unable to render impartial objective assistance advice and services. So conflicts of interest has been a big issue. I've been talking to the Ethics Commission in this regard. I've been working with them. Uh, basically, we want to prevent instances of, say, inspectors performing inspections for uh, properties that they have a financial interest in, a personal interest in, things that we, uh, that, that should be, they should recuse themselves from performing that work if, if there's that conflict of interest. So we already have existing uh, policy that expressly prohibits this. It's, it's, uh, a, it's in our code of conduct, statement of incompatible activities, uh, and DHR's employee obligations reciting the conflicts of interest and incompatible activity. So there's already existing policies in this regard. So we sent out, or uh, management sent out an all-staff memo back in November 20th uh, in light of things that uh, transpired, but it was a, a, a very a reminder of all these existing policies and what the, the staff is responsible for. And in that memo, we expressly stated that all employees must immediately report their, to their direct supervisor or division manager any actual or potential conflict of interest in any property that they may be assigned to work on. They also must recuse themselves from performing their official duties at any property in which they have a personal or financial interest. And then we reminded them of the initial employment request of approval. So there'll be some staff members who have other employment outside of DBI, maybe after work hours or in the weekends. There's a process of approval that they need to submit to HR. And uh, there, there's been a reminder, multiple reminders that went out on that, and we've been getting more uh, uh, of those requests coming in. And I've requested HR to integrate me into that process, so I'm looking into the, the additional employment requests myself to, to see if there is an actual conflict of interest that would, uh, would um, basically, I would recommend either to approve or deny the uh, request, just to add my opinion to it. Um, we're also, for more preventative measures, we're doing um, mandatory trainings. So we're beefing up our onboarding process. So the best way to avoid conflicts of interest is to, to educate staff on it. And I think in the past there was over-reliance on just when, they're on, when they come into the uh, DBI and they get a, a, a binder of the policies and they sign an acknowledgement form. And we just expect them to fully understand it and uh, they just sign it saying that they do. Now I'm working with uh, our human resource division uh, to implement uh, complete trainings on it. So we recently had a, a new inspector start with us last week. So with that inspector, we tested this out. HR had uh, a presentation uh, for them to discuss uh, various things, such as conflicts of interest, statement of activities, Form 700. And then I would meet with them separately and basically discuss with them everything that we're providing, saying you are, we're basically imputing the knowledge to them, you are responsible for all these policies. Take your time to review it and understand, come to me with questions, but right now I'm gonna go over each one of them with you so you understand what you're responsible for before you actually are assigned projects and you go out in the field and do this. So we're beefing up the onboarding, we're doing annual certifications, that was a, a recommendation by the controller's office as well, basically, during our performance plan reviews, uh, all staff will be required to sign off on these uh, annual certifications that they acknowledge they understand all the existing policies and they're following and abiding by it. And 
on top of that, we have required annual trainings with DHR, that's online modules uh, reminding us of the SIA, codes of conduct, things of that nature. Uh, and lastly, the Ethics School, uh, Commission work plan. So as I stated previously, I've been working with Ethics since probably June. We implemented a work plan for the department. Uh, things, uh, so they provide us uh, training materials and I've sent them all the emails of, for the department. So they're sending materials directly to staff to, uh, and training materials and resources for them to understand the things that they're required to do. So uh, we're working hand in hand with the Ethics Commission. The last thing we're going to explore regarding conflicts of interest is possibly Form 700 audit reviews. Uh, this is more of a proactive approach to detect of, uh, conflicts of interest. Perhaps we could look at Form 700s and do a random audit of staff uh, and cross-reference it with properties they've worked on to see if there was a conflict of interest to proactively detect if there was some sort of violation or conflict of interest in that regard. I still need guidance. I, I reached out to the Ethics Commission and the Ethics Division of the uh, City Attorney's Office for that, and um, I'm planning to meet them hopefully within uh, early next year and then get guidance if, if this is permissible for us to do. Uh, last slide. This is just a summary of all the, th uh, the things that we, I've been working on. So the annual risk assessment, as I stated earlier, is, is, is one of the big responses I'm going to have to do. But once, I, I don't think it'll be that difficult to produce once I have all the systems in place that I could produce data on. Uh, number two, are the op uh, we've been updating operating procedures and policies in the department. Here's a list of uh, a lot of them that I've completed working with the division leads. Uh, two things that are in progress are updating our document retention and destruction uh, policy. Uh, back in 2017, Superior Peskin updated the, the code regarding uh, our document uh, retention and, and destruction. And uh, we didn't have a formalized OPP in place, so I'm working with our records management division to update that to make sure that we're, we are saving things uh, and being compliant with the code. Uh, Lastly is the litigation committee case referrals. I'm working with uh, Chief uh, Jamie Sambatsu and Chief John Hinchin on this. We're trying to standardize our way of uh, doing uh, uh, referrals to uh, the litigation committee and the city attorney's office. Uh, I have a draft in place. I'm just waiting for uh, feedback from the uh, two chiefs and then we could roll that out. Uh, number three is the adherence to statement. That's complete. That's the annual certification that we're moving forward with. Number four is the conflicts of interest attestation. So conflicts of interest extends beyond what's internal within DBI. We, were, we also want to assure that, for example, the special inspectors submitting the reports, they have no relationship with the contractors that they're inspecting the work of. Uh, so we've drafted something in place uh, in a way of they have to assign an attestation saying there is no conflict of interest when they submit that report. So that's in development now. We plan to hopefully roll that out within early uh, 2024. Lastly, anonymous complaints. After discussion with other departments and to be aligned with what they're doing and conversation with the city attorney's office, we're going to move towards making all complaints, external complaints coming into the office a default to being anonymous. So all the complainant information coming in would be anonymous. It wouldn't be uh, uh, available for public view. And basically this encourages people to uh, report uh, potential violations and it also uh, assures them that there, there, there won't be any retaliation for them to report these instances of, uh, or of these complaints. So 
I'm working with uh, our MIS team to develop a system to, to automatically uh, suppress that information and then working with the division leads to roll that out. But that's, I know that was a lot of material, but that's the end of my presentation. I'm here to answer any questions. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Any, any remotely? None. Commissioner, questions, comments? Thank you, first of all, for the presentation. It's very refreshing to see all the updates, even since our two months ago when we had this conversation, and especially the timeline. So I really appreciate all the work that you've been putting into this. Um, I had a couple questions. Uh, how do you expect to track the um, the contractor information to collect and, and kind of the whole interested party, right? So someone goes in, how, how are they gonna know? Um, so we were talking about the conflict of interest, like the special inspection? The conflict of interest and special inspection, one, but also two, like in the database, if you're you know, looking at a couple properties, yeah. are you able to see who is the contractor, who's the expediter, who's the owner of those properties? Like how kind of like, you know, uh, across the board, like how are you tracking for interested parties? That's, uh, that's something w I think with its reliance because it's already codified that if there is a, co a conflict of interest, they're supposed to be disclosing it. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't think we had a mechanism for, for that, for those disclosures to come in. So I think what we opted to do is, okay, moving forward, it's gonna be required if you submit documentation to for us for review for us to accept it you have to affirmatively attest that there is no conflict of interest and if there is even if it's potential disclose it on a form say hey my sister-in-law does own uh, have uh, owned that property then basically we would say you're ineligible to submit this report because you have a conflict of interest and we would advise them of that uh, but yeah, other than that, I, I don't think there there is a way, correct me if I know, to d detect conflicts of interest from contractors and knowing their ownership interests, personal interests with other companies. Um, I, I think I'm saying something different, oh, okay. um, but you've answered some of my question. So if I'm an inspector and I go to a site yeah. and the person I meet there is the owner, okay. how will I know who the contractors on that, pro on that site are? Is that disclosed in the permit application? Yeah. Uh, all, every contractor that's on it, even subcontractors? And I thought we were not collecting expediter information. But if we are, that's fantastic. Um, Neville Pereira, Deputy Director. Um, we, we only collect uh, information that's volunteered on the form, obviously the general contractor or the, 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 the prime contractor on the permit. So. Um, assuming that the trade uh, applications, electrical, plumbing, mechanical, the prime contractor on that uh, will, will be pulling it. They're not obligated, but they do sometimes offer their subcontractors on, on the application. Thank you. Okay. I would offer that as consideration and also um, collecting information if have you hired an expediter and who is it. Um, I would just offer those as things to consider. Uh, and collecting this data since that's the pattern we've seen. Right. Um, and I, I, I like the idea of the audits um, on the expedited permits. I think that that makes sense um, and some of the triggers. The, one of the questions I had around the out of district and same day inspections, mm -hmm. 
Is it the requirement that it's approved prior to the inspection being completed? Is that, is that what approved means? Or could it be approved like, hey, I did this inspection. Can you approve it retroactively? Like, what is the department's policy on that? I think it's approved prior. So the senior inspectors are the ones that uh, assign uh, to inspections for the dates of staff. So it has to be approved. I think that I've heard there are instances when inspectors out in the field and then a contractor would say, hey, I also have this permit and it's in this property. Could you look at this as well? I believe that they would have to get a supervisory approval. They would have to notify their senior of that and then document in the system. So I think there'll, there'll be a period of adjustment once these trackers are, yeah. are in place and they realize that I'm overseeing it and then they have to adjust and document all the approvals. Otherwise it'll be flagged and then yeah, so hopefully it'll work out as planned. And they, they have like on their tablets or whatever they in the do. field they have this. So this isn't going to stop good work from happening. Well, people will have the mechanisms with them in the field to, to be able to update things as they right, in real time. In real time, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. I have no further questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no further comments. Then we have uh, item 10 update regarding permit processing time improvements. Good morning, commissioners. I'm Patrick Hannon, the communications director for the Department of Building Inspection. We're here today to talk about uh, the progress that we've made in permitting times. Uh, we've talked to you for the past three years about the various different initiatives we've put in place to make uh, improve our customer service and to improve the speed by which we conduct these reviews. Um, and I'm proud to say that we have made some great progress. Uh, we've shared some information with you in September. We want to come back and let you know how it continues to go. Next slide. So the first thing to note is that we've made, we continue to make good progress. Uh, we've made 71% improvement in the time it takes to assign a building station plan checker uh, on the medium. We're doing it five weeks faster. Um, similarly, the building station first review of comments is also happening about five weeks faster than in January. This represents a 71% improvement for the, uh, the time to assign and a 67% improvement in the time to actually conduct that review. Part of that uh, assignments uh, increase was related to what Chris was just talking about, which is having that group of senior managers get together and determine, well, who has, who has availability, who has expertise in a certain type of project, and really doing what we call dynamic staffing assignments, whereby rather than just take the next person in line, they're figuring, wow, who, who has the ability, capability, and capacity right now um, to take this project on so that we can get it moving forward as quickly as possible. The second item here, the uh, actually issuing that first review of comments five weeks faster. That's also a sign of some of the improvements that has been made by Neville and his team in permit uh, services, um, both in terms of how and trying to standardize some of the work, trying to define exactly what needs to be reviewed and trying to make uh, these processes just move faster in general. Next slide, please. A few things to keep in mind though. Number one is that these, the permitting indicators are really calculated as medians. Um, and this fluctuates over time in part because it takes a while for the permits from when they're introduced to actually cross that line. So the data we show today, um, some of it will change, right? Because over time, as more permits uh, move across that line, they can move up and down a little bit. The other thing I really want to flag is that November and December, they appear to skew our results to be for, due to shorter um, work months and reduce staffing due to, around the holidays. Next slide. 
So one of the other things that we've done in the past few years is we really reestablished our metrics. Um, thanks to Megan walsh we were able to um, produce better, more reliable data. Um, but we've also really honed in on what we should be measuring. And what you see here is what we're actually measuring. The OT, the over-the-counter permit issuance, the in-house review permit time to the first review by the building station. And I want to pause there for a second. The reason we focus on the first review by the building station is that's something entirely within our control. Right? We have a whole host of other departments that may need to look at a building permit, um, but that first review by the building station is just focused by DBI. Um, and so we really wanted to make sure that we were measuring things that we were in complete control of. Uh, the next item is the pre-application meetings, instant online permit issuance for both building and trades, uh, electronic plan review processing, um, and then, of course, the Mayor's Housing for All Directive also established a series of metrics, including total issuance time for issued housing-related permits, the plan check time for housing-related permits, and the time to, for the first review for housing-related permits. Next slide, please. So what you see here is how many of the over-the-counter permits are issued within two business days. Um, right now, we're hitting 62%. Our target is 60%. Um, and we've met that 60% target in July, September, October, November, and we, in July, in August, we're at 59%. Um, this is really represents the vast majority of permits that are processed in San Francisco. Actually, 94% of all permits um, that we manage are done over the counter. So being able to hit this mark is something we're both proud of and really represents um, some of the good work being done in the permit center, both with our colleagues in the permit center, with the other permitting departments, and by our own team members. Next slide, please. Here's the in-house review, uh, first review comments at the building station, what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Our target's 85%, right? Right now we're hitting 72%, so we're not quite getting there, but we are making great progress. In fact, we, in the past nine months, since January of this year, we've gone 67% faster. And I wanna pause here, because you can see that chart on the bottom really shows that the volume of reviews at times it's gone down a hair, but the speed by which we're conducting those reviews, which is the blue, the blue part of the, uh, the chart, has really gone up significantly. Um, in the first few months, you see that that review time was largely static, but that it really increased in the, in the past few months, um, and that is representative of really some of the operational improvements that we've been put into place. Um, they take a while to bear fruit. Right? Like we've actually found it can take up to six months for once we put an operational improvement in place for the team to really understand, get a, uh, become very uh, skilled at managing it and put into place and for those results to actually bear fruit in part due to that, uh, uh, the lag time with the permits. Next uh, slide, please. So this is the priority permits. Um, and as you can see, our target is 85%. We're hitting 100% getting these first review um, within our target time period. Um, this includes the ADUs and 100% affordable projects. So these are really um, some of the most important projects that we manage. Next slide, please. And one of the things we try to do is we wanna get more people, more of the contractors really, to apply for certain types of permits that they can get instantly online to do it online. That reduces the, the amount of traffic in the permit center, reduces the staff that are, that are processing those permits and allows the, those customers to get those permits essentially immediately if they're, if they're a licensed contractor who's registered with DBI. Our target is 15%. Uh, right now we're hitting 14.5%. Uh, we've increased our publicizing of, this, of the availability of this service and we'll continue to do that for the next year to see if we can push that up a little tiny bit. Next slide. And I'm sorry, that last one was for re-roofing and kitchen and bathroom models. 
Um, and here you see the plumbing and electrical permits that are processed online. Again, we're aiming for 60%. Right now we're hitting uh, 57%, which is good. Um, but we do are, would like to still get up those final three points by encouraging and reminding contractors um, who are registered with us that they have this service available. Next slide, please. So this is the electronic plan review. Uh, right now we are hitting 62%. Uh, our target is hit 65%, but as you heard, we're switching to 100% electronic plan review uh, for in-house projects in January. So this metric's gonna go up to 100%. Um, in January, and we have a whole outreach effort associated with that to remind folks not just through the AB1114 legislation and changes that are being made to our process, but also for the folks who are, uh, who have been submitting an electronic plan review, which will be changed under that process. But some people, as you can see, they haven't embraced this process yet, and so we want to do additional outreach to make sure that folks know exactly what to do um, so that when this transition occurs, it can happen successfully. Next slide, please. So this shows the medium number of days to issue housing-related permits by the issuance year. Um, and the target was a 50% reduction from 2022. And what we've done so far is we've done an 18% reduction from 476 days down to 391 since 2022. This, again, is trending in the right direction. We still have some work to go, um, but we do feel good about the gains that we've made. Next slide, please. This is the median uh, days with plan check for housing-related permits by issuance year. Again, the target is a 50% reduction by 2022. This is one of the goals set by the mayor. Um, and we've achieved a 13% reduction compared to last year from 242 to 211 days. Next slide. And here we have the percentage of housing producing permits and addenda receiving first review within six weeks or less. Again, this is the section that we control completely. Right, the section that DBI is responsible for. And our target is a 50% improvement from 2022. So far, we've seen a 27% improvement year to date from 52 to 66%. But I wanna note that 84.5% of the plans that arrived in the, in the first quarter of fiscal year 2024, so in the last few months, received their first review in six weeks or less, which with a median of 18 business days. Um, which essentially means that in this short period of time, we are hitting that 50% goal, and our aim is to continue that trend um, through the next year so we can achieve this metric. And with that, that's our presentation. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Um, seeing none, is there commissioners questions or comments? No, thank you. It's exciting work. Great job. So next we are on to item 11, uh, director's report, 11A, director's update. Good morning, uh, Interim President Toot and uh, commissioners. Um, sorry for uh, not being here at the beginning of the meeting. I had another meeting which I had to attend. Um, I have a few words uh, to say at, at, uh, at, as we're at the end of the meeting. Uh, few updates, so I'll start with, uh, we're conducting a customer survey survey uh, that we're currently uh, 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 undergoing, and it's to get a better understanding of what uh, customers feel is working well and what requires attention. Uh, so we opened the survey on December 5th, 
we're, uh, the survey will be closed December 22nd, so we should have an update for you uh, soon thereafter. Um, as this is our final commission meeting uh, of the year, I wish to thank everyone, wish everyone a happy holiday, uh, and I hope you're all able to take some time off and relax and uh, rejuvenate and celebrate. Um, I also want to say thank you, uh, commissioners, for your ongoing support and your encouragement throughout this past year. I feel extremely fortunate to work with uh, commissioners as knowledgeable and thoughtful as you. You are and have been our partners in our ongoing efforts to improve DBI and better serve the public. Honestly, there's no way we could do what we're doing without your leadership and guidance. And I want to publicly thank our staff, uh, from the information counter to the permit techs, to plan checkers, inspectors, administrators, and the finance team, uh, along with the records manag managers and everyone in between. Thank you. Working with you is a privilege, and I greatly appreciate the hard work and commitment you bring to DBI every day. Commissioners, as you know, DBI has gone, undergone a massive amount of change and improvement in the three and a half years since I took on this role. From tightening up on our inspection processes to streamlining our permitting and adopting a culture of transparency and customer service, uh, every single DBI employee has been asked to rethink how they approach their work and adapt to a new and better way of doing business. Change is hard uh, for any organization, and yet the staff at DBI have embraced this change. They've thrived in it and excelled at it. The proof is, uh, as you heard, in the data. Uh, it's in the progress we're making in issuing permits. It's in the positive feedback we're receiving from our customers. It's in the process improvements and our staff embracing those improvements. So thank you, commissioners, for your time, vision, dedication, your willingness to stand with us in this time of change. The ask is hard, uh, to ask us hard questions and push us to aim higher. And thank you to my colleagues at DBI. I truly appreciate your fine uh, work and consider myself lucky to work with every one of you. I wish you all a very happy holiday season and look forward to the great work we'll do together in 2024. That concludes my director's report. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, 11B. Update on major projects. Just a moment. If we could get the slides, thank you. There we go. Uh, can we have the first slide, please? Okay. Um, good morning again, Commissioners. The following slides are intended to highlight the volume and valuation of projects consisting of five million or more in, in, in work valuation, uh, both uh, between filed, issued, and completed in the past month. Uh, we will profile a few projects that bring especially high value in terms of their contribution to housing and community assets. So next slide, please. Uh, in November 2023, uh, three permit applications with an estimated 
construction valuation of uh, five million or more were filed with DBI. One was for a new four-story bus maintenance facility uh, as part of SFMTA mixed-use Potrero Yard redevelopment at 2500 Mariposa Street. That was valued at 400 million. Um, another was a new 71-story, uh, 672-unit apartment building at 524 Howard Street. And that one was valued at $268 million. Um, next slide, please. Um, last month, we issued three high-value permits with a total valuation of $136 million. One was for a new 17-story, 184-unit affordable housing building at 200 Folsom Street. Uh, that was valued at nearly $75 million. Another was for a new medical office building at the CPMC Mission uh, Bernal Campus uh, at 3501 Cesar Chavez Street. Uh, that was valued at uh, $55 million. And if we can have the last slide. Um, lastly, DBI finaled uh, two high-value permits. One was for the completion of a new 193-unit apartment building with 48 affordable units um, located at 65 Ocean Avenue. Uh, that was valued at $48 million. Uh, and another was for shorting an excavation for the perimeter pile upgrade at 301 Mission Street, which was valued at $5 million. Uh, that concludes my uh, major projects update, available for questions. There's no questions. Uh, we're out to 11C, update on DBI's finances. Good morning, Commissioners. Alex Koskinen, Deputy Director, Administration. I have another regular monthly financial update and a series of small updates on various other things, including the fee study. Next slide, please. So 42% of the year has elapsed so far. The main thing to focus on in our financial data is that we have collected 38% of our budgeted revenue so far, which is below expectations. The previous month was very slow and lagged by a, another 2%. We had previously been about 2% behind. I don't think this is reason for concern yet, but it is definitely something we will continue to monitor. Hopefully things will pick up. Um, we, I, I do expect us to have expenditure savings to cover this, but if it were to get worse or not improve, then we will need to take a closer look at our expenditures in the second half of the year. So next slide. And then as the third bullet noted, we don't really have comprehensive projections for revenues or expenditures yet. It's very hard early in the year. It's so volatile, variable, things change. But in January, January will be the first of our two comprehensive major projection efforts. We report to the controller's office and mayor's office at six months and nine months throughout the year and give projections for how we think all of our expenditures will end up at the end of the year and our revenues. So those last two columns there, right now we're just projecting on budget, but next month those will have uh, real projections in them. 
So next slide, please. And then here are expenditures. We are, again, it's very difficult to project. We don't get invoices until well after we have procured services and just knowing what we will need uh, through the end of the year is difficult. Labor is the steadiest expenditure and you can see we're right on budget. We have 40% uh, of the pay periods have passed so, uh, so far and we've spent 39 to 40% of our salaries and, and benefits budget. Next slide. And then permits remain, the number of permits remain higher this year than a similar uh, period last year, so through November. But in valuation is, is higher as well by, it's approximately the same. But due to the timing issues, we collect fees at various different points at filing, at issuance, and so it's looking at the number of permits and the valuation is a good proxy for revenue, but it doesn't always tell the full story. So this year we are lagging a little bit behind and we don't have a big driver like we had last year, last winter with the uh, code change, people trying to get their permits in ahead of the code change. So that spiked revenue a bit. I don't think we can expect that this year, but hopefully things uh, pick up a little bit. The Fee increase certainly has has helped this from from being worse than it was our revenue. So next slide, please. Here are the number of permits and the valuations themselves. So you can see, especially in the uh, in the kind of low low valuation projects, where we've seen seen more of those permits uh, come through. So that concludes the regular financial update. And I have a, a series of other updates. So the budget development process for fiscal years 25 and 26 has kicked off. The budget system is open. We are beginning to develop our budget for the next two years. We will present to you in January and then again at another special meeting that will be scheduled early February, likely per uh, the building code requirements. Um, and one other bit of budget news is the mayor's office has sent out instructions to all city departments letting everyone know that the city's financial position was, the city was in, is in a difficult financial position and they were asking for mid-year budget cuts. They initially told DBI that DBI may be subject to those reductions. However, they have let us know recently that we will not be. So they had originally proposed a $160,000 cut to our CBO grant budget for this fiscal year and they let us know that they will not be taking that cut, so the full budgeted amounts will be available for this fiscal year. Now, on to the fee study. So I apologize, I sent very late, right before this meeting, uh, the fee model that we received from the consultant. I want to stress that it is still in draft form. The numbers will still change, but what you can get out of it is uh, an idea of how the fee model works. 
It's a technical document, all numbers, no narrative. But if you, you can use it to follow how the uh, permit services, inspection services, admin rates, hourly rates are developed, what costs go into the fee model, how those costs are allocated and distributed. I'd be happy to answer any questions on that, but again, there are still technical um, policy changes that are being discussed and legal issues that are being discussed and, and developed. Um, things like what, what costs are included? Are you including this revenue transfer but not that? Or this group of people, are you considering them admin or inspection services? Think, things like that. Um, legal considerations, what, what fee payers are paying for what fees? Who are we allowed to charge for certain services? And then policy considerations. We know that we're not going to charge the full fee allowable, so we're not going to charge an amount that would fully recover our costs because that would result in a very large fee increase. So our plan is to use a certain amount of our existing fund balance, likely 13 to $15 million in this next fiscal year. And the policy discussions are how to allocate that fund balance, so which fee is to discount. Um, we're really so far targeting the fees that would otherwise have large increases to um, keep things manageable, but that is an ongoing discussion. So in January, there's a special meeting to dedicated to the fee study, and we will provide the full consultant's report with their narrative, and that will likely be the final fees that make it into the budget. It's very difficult. You may be asking and wondering, we thought this would be done in November. Why is it later? How come it's not done? There's value in, things change all the time. And for example, we're developing the budget that will impact our costs for next year. We don't know what all those costs are. The longer we wait, the more we can um, include in the fee study now, if let's say, our water bill, PUC lets us know in February that our water bill is going up $10 million. That wouldn't be included in the final fee study. So we wouldn't be able to recover that cost. So the longer we wait, the more we can include, the more certainty we will have um, surrounding our costs. And so, but January is the cutoff. Whatever we know as of January will be included in the fees for next year. Um, I would also like to give a big shout out to our MIS group, our management information systems, They're our IT group. Most of the presentations that you've heard today have touched on them and their work. Uh, the the uh, electronic plan review, the AB 1114 stuff, the uh, dashboards that Chris Vergara showed, a lot of that requires work from MIS to make changes to the permit tracking system. This fee study stuff, if we're creating, planning to create a new fee, they'll have to plan for that and code that into the permit tracking system. And as these new systems come online and things get more complex, the demands on their time grow, but their staffing has not yet. 
But so I just want to acknowledge them and thank them for the work that they've been doing. Um, that is all I have for now, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Any questions? Any questions? Okay. Um, let me do my disclosure. I used to work for some of the CVOs. I still have friends and that receive services and also provide those services um, at one of the CVOs who has awarded one of the contracts. The, if I have not had a chance to receive what you sent out, if people have questions about it before and now in the special meeting, how can they, um, uh, Dr. Reardon, can you, how can commissioners ask questions or clarifying, get clarification, anything in this fee study model that we receive, but most of us I don't think have reviewed yet between now and the special meeting? Well, um, I'm not sure if we will be able to provide you with anything prior to the meeting because we won't have the information presented until then. But I, I think that there's always an availability to work through Sonia maybe and uh, assemble questions as as they might arise to okay. have them prepare for the meeting. Great, thank you. And even if we aren't able to respond before or prior to the meeting, please send your questions and I will be sure to incorporate them into the presentation. Fantastic, and thank you. I would like to make one note about the materials that you were sent. Again, the technical fee model. The one thing that is not included in there is a discussion of the CBO grants. That is going to be a standalone component, um, a one or two page add-on to that. It will be included in the fee study and it will be part of the January presentation, but due to some pending discussions with the mayor's office and some legal analysis, um, it is not included for now, but just know that it, it will be. So thank you. Thank you. you. And can you go over again what the timeline for the fee study is? So we have the model, what's next, and then when do we expect to have the final results? And if you said it, I apologize for missing it. So we will, I hope to have a final version, final draft of the fee model and present it in January. And then we will load the results of that fee study, the revenues, the, the proposed revenues into our budget we submit our budget mid-February. And then the fees would be, depending on legislation, we will need legislation to enact these changes in the building code. It will likely this year be budget trailing legislation again, so it will be signed in August and then effective in September. But going forward, I hope to have in this legislation something that would allow in the future fees to become effective on July 1st going forward. Okay, that, that timeline makes sense. So at, our, at the special meeting, we'll be able to talk about the modeling. Is that what we'll be able to do? Okay, that makes sense. The modeling and, and the narrative and the, the structure, what's included, what any specific fees are if anyone has concerns and then what we are the fee the fee study gives a ceiling fee this is what it costs to provide the service this is the maximum that you can charge as a fee 
there will be a discussion on what we actually want to charge because we know we won't be charging the full amount for everything. Thank you. And the opportunity for us to administratively change the fees, that won't be in here, because, but that may be contemplated in future legislation or in the fee study legislation itself? Yes, I will be working with Carl and the mayor's office to propose legislation that would give us some sort of flexibility to increase the fee without, uh, without a full fee study or without uh, full legislation to the board. Some sort of escalation factor by inflation, I don't think that's enough. Um, I think we, my, my plan is to, I, I've developed a, a model that can be updated with future budget reports. You just drop them in and it recalculates the fees. And then likely some report would be sent to the BIC, the mayor's office, the board of supervisors with our fee proposal and they could just approve um, without needing more comprehensive legislation. Okay, thank you very much, sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, item 11D, update on proposed or recently enacted state or local legislation. Good afternoon or good morning. Uh, I'll be really brief. Just want to update you on some ordinances that you considered at your last meeting, including the ordinance to amend local findings to the San Francisco Building Code Amendments to the State Building Code. That ordinance was considered by the Land Use and Transportation Committee this past Monday and they referred it to the full Board of Supervisors. The full board will vote or have its first reading uh, after the board's recessed on Tuesday, January 9th. And the ordinance to extend the deadlines for the Accessible Business Entrance Program. Supervisor Mandelman, the sponsor of that ordinance, is considering amendments to clarify the role of the Access Appeals Commission. And so that ordinance has not yet moved to the Land Use and Transportation Committee. I will have an update for you in January. The ordinance you considered last time to amend the planning code to uh, clarify the ministerial process for accessory dwelling units. The State Department of Housing and Com Community Development has requested some additional amendments that the Planning Department and Mayor's Office are incorporating. And so the Land Use Committee is expected to consider those amendments on January 22nd. Um, moving on to another ordinance that's been on your list for a long time to amend the electrical code to require certain certifications for communications work and electrical work, sponsored by Supervisor Connie Chan. She tabled that legislation, but worked with DBI um, to issue an information sheet to achieve the same goals of her original legislation to spell out what license are licenses are required for electrical permit issuance and installation. So thanks to our code advisory committee, our electrical division, and our permit techs for working on that. Um, sorry, I haven't been giving cues for the slides, but we discussed the vacant commercial storefront and facade inspection ordinances today. Um, on slide six, there's an ordinance amending the fire code to require filing with the fire department some record of inspections for sprinklers and alarm systems. That ordinance also includes uh, an amendment to the fire code to require a minimum of five feet access from the private right-of-way for newly subdivided lots under State uh, Senate Bill 9, which we discussed earlier today. That five feet access 
relates to DBI's ministerial review of these lot split applications. So that ordinance will be before you at your January meeting for your recommendation. And last, an ordinance amending the housing code to authorize occupants of residential dwelling units to sue their landlords for substandard housing conditions has been introduced by Supervisor Myrna Melgar, and that ordinance has been referred to the Land Use and Transportation Committee, and we expect them to consider that in January. I said last, but there is a resolution authorizing DBI to accept and expend a $100,000 grant from the state that we received for the implementation of Solar App Plus, which satisfies our requirement, uh, a state requirement to have an instant online permitting platform. Um, we will be at the board's budget and finance committee on January 10th to get approval to accept and expend that grant from the state. And then on Slide eight, you just see some uh, dates for the state legislative calendar starting in January. It's the second year of the two-year state legislative session. Um, the, the governor has to submit a budget by January 10th. The last day for the legislature to submit bill requests is January 19th. Um, and the last day for bills to be introduced is February 16th. And that's my update. Um, are we able to accept without tabling E and go on to, I want to make sure we can do the special commission. I don't know if other commissioners are okay with this as an idea, but I'm wondering if we can skip the presentation for E and we, we do minutes and make sure we have time for the special meeting. I just don't want to run out of time. Oh, we're, we're, uh, don't we have to we, be out of here by noon? We would, we would have enough time. It's okay. Okay. Um, great. Well, then we can continue. Sorry, because yeah, we, we're trying to uh, we're trying to be, leave the room by 12 because 12, between 12 and 12.15. Oh, okay, between 12 and 12.15. Uh, I'll be quick. <laughs> um, good, good morning, commissioners. Matthew Green, uh, Acting Deputy Director for Inspection Services. I'm pleased to provide an update on the activities and performance of the Inspection Services Division. Um, take the first slide. Uh, in, in September 2023, the Building Electrical Plumbing Divisions conducted uh, 9,760 inspections. 88% of those inspections were conducted within two business days of the date requested by the customer, slightly under our target of 90%. Um, sorry, uh, November of 2023. apologize for that. Um, I think the numbers there are below the 90% because the, um, the APEC and there was three holidays, so all the inspection activity was sort of compressed in less days. So, but we'll keep an eye on that. Um, in the same month, our housing inspection services conducted 856 inspections, with 113 of those being routine inspections of multifamily dwellings. Uh, the building electrical and plumbing divisions received 426 complaints and responded to 99% of them within three business days, well exceeding our target of 85%. Uh, additionally, the Code Enforcement Division sent 63 cases to director's hearing. Next slide. Uh, lastly, our housing inspection services received 414 non-life hazard complaints. and responded to 90% of them within three business days. For life, ha life hazard and heat complaints, housing received 36 complaints and responded to 78% of them within one business day. Uh, housing inspection also abated 350 cases with a notice of violation and sent 37 cases to director's hearing. Um, Last uh, commission or last meeting, Commissioner Shaddix was asking for some data on um, 
know, the time it takes to close complaints. So I've been working with our data analysts, the best way to pull that data in a, in a comprehensible manner. So hopefully we get those for you in the future. I'm available for any uh, questions you may have. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Is there public comment on the director's report items 11A through E? I'm seeing none. Nope, no public comment. Um, item 12, commissioners, questions and matters. 12A, inquiries to staff. At this time, commissioners may make inquiries to staff regarding various documents, policies, practices, and procedures which are of interest to the commission. And 12B, future meetings and agendas. At this time, the commission may discuss and take action to set the date of a special meeting and or determine those items that could be placed on the agenda of the next meeting and other future meetings of the Building Inspection Commission. Um, the next, the regular meeting is on January 17th and the special meeting regarding the fee studies on January 11th. So did um, commissioners have any inquiries to staff or, uh, or items for uh, the January agenda? Um, I know I've spoken to you about this, um, Director, but I wanted to, the, the expanded compliance ordinance, if it does come before us, I uh, would be curious to, uh, to have staff's con uh, reflections and considerations, if there's anything else that, you know, that could be an amendment um, to that inter in internally. And one thing that I would put forward, although it's outside the purview of this committee, is um, that the the legislation would would contemplate putting anyone who's on the debarment list for the city on in directly into the expedited um, I'm sorry not the expedited the uh, what is the word yes expanded compliance not the expedited compliance the expanded compliance um, program uh, if they've gone that rigorous uh, process for internal um, uh, review. It's, it seems like a, a parallel process um, outside of the DBIs and the BICs jurisdiction, but within uh, a city government, um, having another city uh, government body being able to recommend that to us. Um, but just for your consideration. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, certainly we can look at that. Yes. Thank you. Any other commissioner comments and uh, items? If, if not, you can um, contact me prior to the meeting regarding any agenda items. Yeah. Um, any public comment on 12 A and B? Um, no public comments. Um, item 13, review and approval of the minutes of the regular meeting of October 18th, 2023. Uh, is there a motion to approve the motion minutes? Motion to approve the minutes. Second. There's a motion and a second. And any public comment um, or any corrections? There's no, no public comment or corrections. Uh, is so I will do uh, roll call votes. No, are all you guys in favor? Everybody in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, <laughs> thank you. Minutes are approved. Um, and item 14, adjournment. Is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. Second. Okay, commissioners all in favor? Aye. Aye. We are now adjourned. It's 11.56 a.m. Happy holidays, everyone. We're 11. Yes. So two meetings. The special meeting on the fee study is the 11th.